VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, November the 17th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams producing the Come On with an edition of the program. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, one 590 VOCM, which is 8626. So pretty brutal, wet, windy forecast in store for pretty much most of the island coming over the weekend. Storm moving from west to east. Looked like the south coast is going to be battered with wind and rain. So as they say, batten down the hatches. And as you heard Brian mention in the VOCM newscast, young Alex Nahook last night with a goal and an assist. Looking good out there last night for sure. Unfortunately lost 6-5 to the defending cup champions the Vegas Golden Knights. And Dawson Mercer in the 15th game of the season for the New Jersey Devils. His first assist. So now four points with a goal along with these three goals. And of course Nahook scored with the, his father in the stands. I'm not sure who else is up there but I saw Sean himself on the big screen from the, uh, b- the broadcast. So it's Hockey Dad's weekend for the Montreal Canadiens players. So, pretty cool. All right, reminders to the rugby fans. Mons Memorial Seahawks, uh, they take on the University of Victoria tonight in the Canadian National Championship for rugby. That is at uh, kickoff at 10 island time tonight, if you are so inclined. And I've also saw this story this morning. I remember all the ballyhoo when Glenn Big Baby Davis came to town to play for the St. John's Edge, right? Former uh, NBA player, so that brings a lot of flair. Obviously a big talent. He's in big trouble, though, all the same. So he's been found guilty for a bunch of different charges. Fraudulent claims to the NBA Players Health and, uh, Health and Benefit Welfare Plan received millions of dollars through these false claims. So he's found guilty on all the conspiracy charges. The last person was found guilty on the same charges, a fellow named Terrence Williams. He was sentenced to 10 years. So Davis in trouble. Not the first time Glenn Big Baby Davis has been in trouble. Uh, February 7, 2018, Davis was arrested for drug possession and drug distribution. Have police uh, found 126 grams of marijuana and a briefcase containing $92,000 in cash. He agreed to pay the maximum fine of $15,000, and that, that meant that the courts were not going to pursue uh, any charges at that time. Now, it doesn't look like it's going to matter because he is in trouble. All right. On this date in history, in 1869, the Suez Canal opened, right, connecting the Mediterranean and the Red Seas. Now you see the story about global supply chain interruptions one more time, and this one because of a drought and the lack of water in the Panama Canal, which has thrown everything into an absolute tizzy. So they are moving from 29 to 25 ships allowed through the canal at the same time, and that's going to be reduced all the way to 18 ships in February, representing 40 to 50 percent of full capacity. So generally, in uh, past times, upwards of 36 uh, ships were able to pass through. Now all the way down there, this added, of course, a lot of uh, additional time to the transport of goods, whether it be from China to Miami or whatever the case may be. And at the end of the day, you and I will foot the bill. It has, absolutely has an implication on the Atlantic coast as well. So I had to reduce travel through the Panama Canal, none of water. It's not one thing, it's another. All right. So we heard when DFO changed their assessment model to talk about the fact that it looks like some of the COD stocks were not in the critical zone, possibly in the uh, cautious zone. And that's based on, you know, moving back the data from 1954, uh, pardon me, from 83 to 54. Now we see the results of the COD stock assessment, Atlantic COD, in 3PS off the south coast. And it is in a critical zone. 
So here's one of the quotes. The productivity overall in this stock is not in a good place at the moment, and that's why it remains in the critical zone. They talk about very low recruitment, which is basically uh, young fish entering into the population in any given year. Apparently the cod are smaller than they ever were at any given age. They're maturing younger, not a lot of older fish within the population. It, they are talking about also the high mortality, uh, the highest mortality since 2008. Now, since 1983, they've been doing the assessment. They hadn't done it this year because, of course, DFO vessels, retro fits, lack of parts, and all the rest that we've been talking about. They're talking about the warmer temperatures. So I point you specifically to silver hake. Silver hake is a warm water species, a predatory fish. They eat prey similar to cod. Here's the problem when they talk about uh, plans to rebuild the stock. The only one lever they have in the short term to pull is just how much is allowed in the total allowable catch because DFO in short term isn't going to be able to deal with uh, additional predators and warmer waters and or the phytoplankton uh, shortage of and or capelin stock or what have you. So what does the plan even look like? I mean, I'm always amazed when we talk about a plan to rebuild when if we are talking in reality, the only thing that can be afforded by DFO is absolutely attention to the total allowable catch because you can't do a whole lot about warm temperatures and predation and phytoplankton and the rest of the complicating factors but grim news for the stock uh, in 3ps and then you move off to a story that i think is just at its beginning and that's about rejigging the price setting panel for all seafood products in particular snow crab you all know the story right six weeks of a tie up this past year the price setting panel generally always had their hands tied behind their back. Three-person panel, the FFAW puts in a price, the Association for Seafood Producers put in a price, and the panel picks one. And in this year in Snow Crab, they started the season at $2.20 a pound, which was a drastic drop from the year prior. You know, it was a real banner season for crab harvesters and the processing sector. So they're going to, both sides have agreed to, with the most recent report coming from the government. It's not all fully fleshed out insofar as details go, but the market only can bear what the market is able to bear. So I don't imagine it's going to be very different from how they moved forward last year, a sliding scale. So if the market improves or increases, then more price will be afforded to the fish harvesters or the snow crab harvester because it's only you're only going to be able to sell it for what people are willing to pay for it. So if it boils down to the very basics of the percentage of the price, the market price, for the harvesters and for the processing sector, something that would be predictable and fair. The only way to understand that in full is if all of the receipts from the processing sector are included in setting a price. Because unless that is in full disclosure, there's always going to be some of the unknowns and the endless spats that we see season after season on snow crab and any other product. So they're coming up with a plan, and the price will be set well in advance as opposed to the 11th hour, which also brings upon a lot of confusion and frustration or consternation. So let's see if anyone in the fishery would like to step up and talk about that, either on the processing side or the harvesting side. We're happy to take that call today. But it's necessary. Even the price setting panel last year on Snow Crab said, this is probably not the right price. But they are a handcuff. Pick one or the other. So hopefully they can figure that out. And add to it, you know, the conversation yesterday, or announcement a couple of days ago, $25 million for 147 uh, projects throughout the province in both fishery and the aquaculture sector, including $3.2 million for cold storage at Gander International Airport, which is absolutely a win for the industry, I would imagine, specifically for the harvester, pardon me, the processing sector, because if the quality is not where it needs to be, then all of a sudden our product is not quite as attractive as it should be. So if you want to talk, talk about that, let's go. Moving from cold to warm. Canadians have been really anxious to take advantage of some of the federal and provincial monies put forward for efficiency in heating your home. 
right? We can talk about the carbon tax, carve out for home heating, fuel, and central heat pumps and all the rest. But a lot of folks, including many people that I know, took advantage of the Greener Homes Grant. So it was pretty generous. It was $5,000 or up to $5,000 for energy efficiency retrofits in your home, up to 600 bucks to help with the cost of home energy evaluations. Really attractive pot of money. The money that was set aside, the $2.6 billion, was hopefully going to last until 2028 as Canadians, you know, were aware of the program, took advantage of the program, were able to get the contractors uh, involved or included in the retrofit of their home. It looks like that money, because of the popularity of the program, is going to be depleted sometime next year, not in 2028. So it's been pretty popular. Natural Resources Minister uh, Jonathan Wilkinson, you know, he kind of tiptoed around it, but pretty much said that they're looking at extending the program because for no matter if you're talking about your carbon footprint or what have you, Home heating efficiency, whether it be upgrading your windows or your siding and or your uh, insulation, people just want to have it uh, less costly to heat their home. But we can take on all the car outs and home heating issues. And it looks like that greener home money is very quickly going out the door. So if that's something that is available to you or enticing to you, you probably better get at it sooner than later. Okay, sticking with homes. So the province yesterday made an announcement regarding affordable units, and they put aside uh, $80 million to do exactly that. So they expect to be able to deliver 922 affordable rental units. And, of course, given the references to 750 units, when in fact it was only 11 units had been built, and all the confusion with the vernacular of housing units or options, whatever all that's supposed to mean. So here's what they're planning here now. 922 affordable rental units. 762 will be built through the private builders and 130 through community organizations, including in Happy Valley Goose Bay Housing, the Homelessness Coalition in Labrador, and Connections for Seniors in St. John's. They're going to focus this effort in on seniors, vulnerable populations, indigenous people, and people with disabilities. The private builders will be the landlords. The rents will be set by the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation. And here's the numbers that they are using on that front. Okay, here we go. Under the program, using the data from June of 2023, rental rates will be $880 for a two-bedroom unit in the St. John's area, $795 in other island communities, $880 in Labrador under the private sector. For the community sector, the rates would be $775 in St. John's and $705 elsewhere on the island, $740 in Labrador. That's an important component because in many of the other housing plays, when we talk about affordability, there's no real predictable rent price. So now that this announcement has been made of $80 million and the rents will indeed be set by the housing corporation, it gives that level of certainty that when we're trying to hit a bullseye in affordability, then this will be the outcome. Now, it looks like the private sector is quite attracted to this because it all comes in the form of a forgivable loan. Then begins the conversation, or I guess extends the conversation, about the number of tradespeople required. Not just to build the homes, but you look at some of the other projects that are in the offing. Whether it be hydro development or the wind to hydrogen and ammonia uh, uh, proposals. We just do not have the horsepower. So they're talking about enticing young people to enter into the trades. For some, of course, in the short term, it looks like there's going to be a boon of work without not, not even enough people to cover it. But there's always been that, you know, feast or famine for some tradespeople. Because when it's mega projects, times are good. And when they are finished, then times are maybe looking for opportunities elsewhere in the country. So we'll see what the trades issue comes down to. Because just imagine, if many of these big projects get announced and approved in very tight timelines, you know, and very close to each other. 
there's going to be a race to see who can get the contractors and the sub the uh, tradespeople to actually be able to do the work. So I guess it's an interesting problem to have, but a problem nonetheless. One second, quick sip of coffee. And we're back. On that front, you know, we've been told now by Kruger and Cornerbrook Pulp and Paper that there is going to be a one-week shutdown. Voices in the area are saying it's not time to press the panic button. Even though Kruger talks about market pressures in newsprint, maybe the need to produce something other or in addition to newsprint. But Kruger also mentions the possibility for further shutdowns. And so for 300 people currently working at the mill, of course, they're going to feel some level of stress. Now, I'm not pressing the panic button. I'm not in the boardroom at Kruger. I don't know what their long-term plans are. They are talking about coming back and doing the work. They've been able to rebound many times in the past, albeit with financial support from the provincial government. Then when you hear some other voices, including Jim Parsons, the mayor of Cornerbrook, you know, again, he's one of those folks saying, hey, no time to panic quite yet. But the implications are real. Like when people see that their future might be precarious and their job may be at risk and the mill's future may be gray, then they're very hesitant to spend money like you would. If you have some rainy day funds set aside and here comes the Christmas season where many people will probably spend more than they would usually throughout the course of the year, maybe just maybe the impact on other businesses will be real while people tighten their belt because they just don't know what the future holds. And I don't pretend to know what the future holds for Kruger, but we do know it's been a linchpin of the uh, West Coast economy, and we can all collectively hope that Kruger finds a way to be viable in the long term. So if you're on the West Coast, let's take it on. All right, a couple other quick ones before we get to you. There's so many different complexities and moving parts in the healthcare professional shortages, the demand, the work-life balance, recruitment, retention, and all the rest of it. One of the things we absolutely do know, and I know a person who was a 10-year veteran as a registered nurse, had their second child, and as a result, and the inability to find daycare, decided to just take a leave of absence. So, not working as a registered nurse. And we all know the vacancy numbers inside that profession in particular. Now, for the entirety of the healthcare, work, healthcare field, now the province is going to create $160, 160 new $10 per day uh, daycare spaces in the new building at St. Michael's Avenue in town, Discovery College, uh, Collegiate in Bonavista, and Eastside Elementary in Cornerbrook. It's going to be ready in the next six months, they say. Hopefully, we'll be able to attract the early childhood educators to staff a 24-7 offering. But it's probably going to be a very helpful thing in the effort to either bring registered nurses back into the fold and or to see people entering the profession know there will be some certainty, as opposed to having an extended shift and calling around to your friends or your mother or your father, can you please take care of the kids because my shift is not over. So probably a very good thing. But again, there has been a bit of a feature of cart before the horse when we talk about $10 a day. The affordability issue has been addressed. But it's only effective if you can actually find a spot. So yes, they've had a new pay grid for early childhood educators. And yes, they're training more and more ECEs. But there's still people in their first trimester that are putting their name on a wait list. We don't really know how this is going to work necessarily. But what people are being encouraged to do as healthcare professionals, put your name in that website, the portal at the provincial government about daycare demand so we can actually have an idea of whether or not we're hitting targets as the government themselves have put forward because public policy is only successful if we know what to measure it against. So the daycare issue, hopefully that will be a good thing for, in particular, nurses, what seems like a lot of that has been directed at, and I guess that's the issue with the majority of nurses at this point in time being females. All right. 
So any of these issues that we could and should be debating in the House of Assembly, no longer an opportunity this year. The fall sitting was 15 days and now it's over. 40 MHA sat for 39 days this year. The Liberals think it's long enough, the other parties disagree. You know, I guess it's a debate about just whether or not how effective the House of Assembly is in the form of the sittings and the question periods. You know, it seems to be all leaning towards constituency week and constituency work, which is obviously important, but is that actually an appropriate required number of days to sit in the House of Assembly? 39. Doesn't sound like a whole lot, but again, I guess we have to measure what was achieved and the caliber of the quality of the debate, whether or not it changed the water on the beans and made things better, and legislation, you know, they did some things, of course. Claire's Law goes through, and then we'll get to the WestJet announcement, which still some confusion on that front. Some people are applauding it quite loudly. Others wondering whether or not that money spent could be spent elsewhere for better ideas, policies, and programs. I think it's a good idea to expand air travel and to have a direct connection with Europe. I do. I think we need one to the United States, notably Newark, New Jersey, or New York City, whatever the case may be. But here's some of the confusion. So in the budget, there was $1.5 million set aside, and an additional $2 million was added to that pot, so in the neighborhood of $3.75 million. We have not been told, well, the Premier was asked specifically how much money was spent to lure WestJet to have this three times a week flight directly to London's Gatwick. They wouldn't say. He went on to say that the money is also available for the other airports if and when they can find a dance partner like WestJet or like Air Canada to bring one of these major routes to where you are. Cantor won't say is a problem because there's, you know, he'll say that the deal is between the airport authority and WestJet, which is true, but how much of that money had to come directly from the provincial government. Now, none of the money's been spent. The money will be spent based on whether or not we have to top up WestJet. People can call it corporate welfare, so be it. Sometimes you have to spend money to get product and help, and then in this case, air access. So the money will be spent based on WestJet's profitability. That's also a very uh, tricky target to try to understand exactly what that means for a large operation like WestJet. So anyway, you want to tackle that. We can do it. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? I had a bunch I wanted to get to. Okay. So, <laughs> good morning to a friend and colleague, former colleague, Fred Hutton. <laughs> so, Tony Wakeham, the leader of the PCs, pretty much said, uh, now that David Brazel is uh, walking away from politics as of December 29th, and he's given a lot, a lot of time to uh, pol- politics, so there's going to be a by-election in Conception Bay, East Bell Island. Tina Neary, who's a councillor down in the Cove, is likely going to be the uh, Tory candidate. Well, at this moment in time, it looks like Miss Neary will be running for the PCs. And Tony Wakeham basically said, the Liberal candidate is Fred Hutton. Now, that's just about a by-election. But it does feel, even some of the more recent ads and announcements, don't be too shocked if shortly after Christmas, there's a call for a general election, right? As opposed to simply having a by-election at Conception Bay, East Bell Island. But anyway, there's a bunch of stuff I wanted to get to. But Fred hasn't said one way or the other if he's in or he's out. But we'll see what happens. Uh, congratulations and bravo to everyone who participated in, organized, and donated to Daffodil Place with the one-night stand against cancer. They raised $522,000. Absolutely brilliant stuff, though. It's 5,220 nights at Daffodil Place, so congratulations to all hands. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show to wrap up the week that requires your participation on the air. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. So one of the popular groups on Facebook is the Newfoundland Tenant and Landlord Support Group, and the administrator of that group is Sherwin Flight. He joins us on line number three. Good morning, Sherwin. You're on the air. 
Good morning, Patty. There's been another news story recently about someone who was wrongfully convicted, and it's been evaluated that it was a wrongful eviction from a rental unit. This is not new. It happens all too frequently. Just how common is it before we get into some of the details of this one? Um, we've heard of landlords breaking the law and tenants breaking the law um, consistently for about 10 years now. Uh, so it's a longstanding issue. When it comes to that, and some of the reaction from government on these stories says, well, you know, people always have the uh, opportunity to take it to court, but the first start is going from in front of an adjudicator. And yes, the province upped the amount of fines that could be associated with any of these breaches of the, uh, the legislation. But what happens when you go to the adjudicator? Um, the adjudicator will handle, uh, you know, part of the dispute. So they will handle things like if there's any unpaid rent, if there's property damage, if the place wasn't left clean, um, that kind of stuff. So basically through dispute resolution, they will, uh, you know, try to make an order so that, um, you know, the situation between both parties is square and fair. Um, but they don't deal with the part of the Residential Tenancies Act that could impose a fine for breaking the law in the first place. So the fines were increased. The changes they increased the fines for a maximum of four hundred dollars from a maximum of four hundred dollars to a maximum of ten thousand dollars for corporations, three thousand dollars for individuals. When those fines are put forward, does the adjudicator have the ability and the authority to ensure the fines are paid, uh, and/or there are some ramifications if they're not? Uh, not really. Uh, my understanding is that the offenses and fines section of the Residential Tenancies Act um, wouldn't be handled by the adjudicator. It would have to be handled through court. Uh, the confusion is coming from whose responsibility that is to actually bring the matter to court. Um, Service Newfoundland is saying that that's the responsibility of a landlord or a tenant. Um, but in you know most other cases and in under most uh, laws that we have, you know it's the government that deals with that enforcement. So you know if I uh, get caught poaching, if I get caught speeding, if I get caught not paying my taxes, you know if I got if I get caught doing any of those things, uh, you know parking illegally in a uh, in a blue zone space. Uh, you know, it can be reported to government and then you can forget about it because the government will investigate, follow up and refer those to court as they uh, deem appropriate. Uh, under the Residential Tenancies Act, that's not an option. They're saying if you think that this should go to court, you have to take that initiative. You have to bring it to court yourself. Uh, you know, we are not doing this for you. Uh, the problem with that is that it's a fine. So even if a person does take this to court and they win, um, you know, that fine would go to the government. And it's not even clear that you could recoup, uh, you know, any costs for legal fees, lost time from work, that kind of stuff. So they're really looking for private individuals and landlords and tenants to take the enforcement upon themselves when it's the government that would benefit from any fines that are collected. So translated, the Crown does not bring forward charges? We haven't found a single case yet, um, and no one can really explain what that process would look like. Uh, every time that they're asked, they use the term, uh, a person can lay in information with the court, uh, which is uh, an unusual use of the word information, but it is a legal thing. Uh, but most people wouldn't understand what that means or how to do it, um, which is why you know no one has done it. And or the time and the money to want to chase something through the courts because it can be extremely expensive when we're talking about maybe legal bills that would exceed any fines that are actually available to be laid. So 
in other provinces, are there mechanisms for enforcement that are different than the legislation we have? You know, I did read in the news story that in Nova Scotia, no fines have been imposed for decades. So is there a best practice model out there that would be beneficial to both landlords and tenants that we should be looking at or uh, considering? Uh, other provinces have realized that the uh, you know the system of letting this fall on the shoulders of landlords and tenants isn't an appropriate way to deal with these issues. So uh, Ontario and BC both have enforcement divisions uh, specifically to deal with uh, residential tenancies issues. Um, those have been around for a few years now, uh, and Nova Scotia has started to go down that road. Um, I believe they've engaged a consultant there a couple of years ago uh, to start looking at this because they've also realized some of the failures of uh, you know, the system that they had in place. So we are seeing more provinces recognize that this is a problematic setup and move to uh, you know, take this enforcement upon themselves where it should be. Even if we had an enforcement compliance officer or an enforcement unit, it still doesn't mean that anything changes for someone who's been illegally evicted from their uh, their apartment. So other than fines, what else could or should be involved here? Because you can uh, give a fine to a landlord. That doesn't mean that I have a place to live anymore. They're all the same. No. Um, and, you know, that's kind of uh, part of the Residential Tenancies Act and, uh, you know, the powers that they have. Uh, in some areas, you know, they don't really have a whole lot of power. Um, to actually address the, you know, the serious problems at hand. Uh, for example, like illegal lockouts. When I've spoken to Service Newfoundland in the past, you know, they said, uh, you know, if a landlord locks you out illegally, file an application with us, which, uh, you know, isn't really an acceptable answer considering that that's going to take, in most cases, at least a month, a month and a half to go through that process. Uh, meanwhile, you don't have access to any of your stuff or anywhere to live. Uh, so I do believe that in situations you know, where there are things like illegal lockouts, illegal disconnection of uh, you know, utilities like uh, heat or water or electricity, uh, that there really should be a more immediate action that can be taken uh, as opposed to just going through this dispute resolution process, which isn't quick enough in a situation like that. This is not about evictions or what have you, but inside your Facebook group, what kind of conversations are being had about the possibility for rent control and vacancy control? Because it's been used elsewhere. Now, I guess we have to strike the balance between protecting the renter and the landlord, in addition to you know encouraging private developers to actually build rental units. So what kind of conversations do you hear on your site? Um, rent control is a topic that comes up fairly often. Um, the problem with rent control is that it's not a specific thing. Uh, so when you look at other places that have implemented forms of rent control, uh, you know, there are different ways to do that. And, you know, it's generally a balance between, uh, you know, trying to protect tenants that are already renting um, and trying to balance that with, uh, you know, the rights of the landlord. Uh, in a lot of cases, rent control hasn't really done uh, you know, much of anything to keep rents lower, um, because in most of those places, landlords can still increase rent, um, you know, to whatever amount they want in between tenants. Um, so, you know, we've always kind of taken the position that, um, you know, proper enforcement of the Residential Tenancies Act, you know, um, stronger rights on both sides in cases like uh, illegal evictions and that kind of stuff, a more immediate action um, would actually do more to help people uh, you know, with their housing situations uh, than rent control might. Um, you know, rent control kind of helps one segment of the population while making it a little bit harder for others um, because we generally uh, have seen in other places with rent control uh, that when a unit becomes vacant, the rent increases more. So the landlord can still increase the rent and it still gets increased to whatever amount they want. Um, it just... 
uh, makes it a little bit easier on existing tenants. So uh, I think if we looked at, you know, the, the legislation itself, the enforcement uh, of it, that those things could go a long way to providing, uh, you know, more stable housing for people um, and being able to address the problems, uh, you know, that can cause people to become unhoused. Yeah, I mean, inside rent control, you're absolutely right. It only helps current renters, not future renters. So rent control plus vacancy control with a predictable percentage increase for landlords to impose year over year and in between renters. So you can't really have one without the other to protect the entirety of the renting population. I'll give you the final word, Sherwin, before we say goodbye. Uh, I really think that this has been a long-standing issue. Uh, we have explained this to government numerous times, uh, and in some of those cases, you know, they have told us directly that we've made some very good points. Uh, so I think we have talked about these issues long enough now. Uh, they should be well understood by government. Uh, I believe it's time to actually take some meaningful action on it now instead of just expecting someone else to do that job for them. Appreciate you making time for the show this morning, Sherman. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Daddy. Take care. You too. All right, bye-bye. As Sherman Flight, he's the administrator of the Newfoundland Tenant and Landlord Support Group on Facebook. I think they've got like 26,000 members, so active to say the least. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk with Brenda Kitchen from Protect NL, what used to be known as the Southwest Coast Alliance. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Join us on line number one is Brenda Kitchen. She's with Protect NL. Let's go to line one. Brenda, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Good morning. Um, so there's three things I'm going to, well, two things, infrasound. And I'm also like to talk about an event we're hosting on Sunday, 19th of November. It's province-wide and it's called the Great Rally Newfoundland and Labrador. If anybody has any questions about what I'm going to talk about, because I do have research to to back off everything I'm about to say, please email protectnl at outlook.com. And with that being said, I'll jump right into it. Okay. Okay, so World Energy GH2, in their documents, they discuss a sound called, or a sound that's measured in decibels. And these are sounds that human beings can hear. But nowhere in their EIS is there any discussion of something called infrasound and is not discussed on any of the handouts. The handouts only discuss audible sounds. So infrasound is a sound that humans can't hear below 20 hertz. Yeah, and, it's uh, low frequency uh, sound, yeah. Yeah, something uh, like tigers actually use infrasound like to stun their prey. It's something you can feel but not hear. And uh, it can actually carry uh, for quite some distance. It can actually travel for miles. Um, and even more so, a greater distance over and underwater. So there's research out there to connect this to depression, emotional distress, migraines, heart irregularities. And there's actually already a seven-year study available on infrasound and how it can affect the people. But there's absolutely no discussion of infrasound anywhere in the 4,000-plus page document of the EIS and or in any of the documents at the World Energy, like the handouts about sound. They never discuss infrasound. Now, 
I, I'm familiar with it in some form, but isn't the issue regarding cardiac potential problems, isn't that more associated with high volume versus low frequency? Because there are stories out there of someone collapsing with uh, sudden arrhythmic death syndrome, SADS, but that was because of the intense repetitiveness of things like a subwoofer in a monitor or in a speaker. So isn't that cardiac issue more associated with high volume repetition versus low frequency? Well, you know, Patty, that is a really good question. And I would love to be much more educated in this area. But uh, my main issue is that uh, I was contacted by a professional man named Desmond McGraw, and he has a, a level, a background, uh, worked worldwide in leading edge technology developments in hydroelectric, natural gas, ammonia, hydrogen carbon plants, wind power, uh, salt domes. Like this guy is worldwide. And he contacted our government back in 2022 to ask them about infrasound. And nowhere in the EIS is infrasound discussed. So, like, what's going on here? A year has passed. And Patty, we're very concerned. This is why we've changed our name to Protect NL, because it really seems that somewhere along the way, our government has stopped caring about the people. It's like the people don't matter. Infrasound is connected to medical issues. Why isn't that discussed in the EIS? And this man, Desmond McGraw, he's been trying to tell the government about it for over a year now and getting nowhere. It'd be good to have Desmond on the show, and he's more than welcome. So when I read about it, because someone put this in my ear a while back as well, and I don't have it in front of me, but they were talking about the, the feelings of fear or awe or like something supernatural was happening as a, a, a reaction to these low-frequency sounds under the 20 hertz. So that much I had read. I didn't see any reference to any issue regarding cardiac concerns. There was reference to uh, potential impact on the central nervous system, what they call vestibular system uh, impact from low-frequency sound or, or infrasonics. So I'm happy to have Des on the show, uh, especially if he has a professional background in this type of matter because you know I'm not insinuating that you're doing anything untoward but we've got to be careful when we talk about health impacts you know to overstate it is not helpful to underreact like I think you're saying that World Energy GH2 is that's not helpful either so to get some real documentation about the impact and the proximity to the turbines when it comes to low frequency sound I'm happy to have that conversation because it's part of it and these turbines are massive. Well, that's really wonderful. Yes, I don't want anybody to take my word for anything that I'm saying. I strongly encourage everybody needs to become a detective now and a researcher more than ever. And I strongly encourage each of you to go out and do some of your own research on infrasound and the health impacts. And on Protect NL website, as uh, soon as we get a moment, because <laughs> we're all volunteers, we'll upload the, the research that Mr. McGraw provided me, because I wasn't going to take just his word either. I wanted to see the research as well. So the main question is, is infrastructure, you know, let's do the research. Why wasn't it included in the EIS? The government was notified of it in 2022. It can travel for miles and miles. So the wind farm in Port-au-Port, the in infrasound can affect the people living in Stephenville as far as St. George's. So it needs to be considered. 
Uh, sure. Well, we should consider everything. No question. Uh, so the two places that I found some information when I looked, one was a Japanese university. I can't remember what it's called, unfortunately. The other one was in Australia. It was the Sydney University Audio Auditory Neuroscience Laboratory, if I remember correctly. So there's the two places where I got information on infrasound, and people should do exactly what you suggest. And be careful of the source, as we all should when we do research on anything under the sun. But those are the two places. And when I looked at reputation of both institutions, they were really quite reputable, so that's what I took as my piece of information, as limited as it is, in infrasonics. Uh, Dave wants me to put you on hold when we're done, Brenda, but would you like to say anything else, or tell us more about what's coming up with the uh, the province-wide rally or protest? Yes. yes, thank you. So the great rally, Newfoundland and Labrador, this is about, you know, people all across the province are becoming very discouraged with how we're being treated by our, our elected government. And, Patty, it goes right back to what you were saying earlier in the show. When they meet in the House of Assembly, really, how effective are those 39 days? What is the quality of their debate? And the Great Rally Newfoundland and Labrador is about people rising up and just letting our government know that that sort of behavior is not acceptable. And what we really want is our government to listen to the people and engage in meaningful discussions and quality debates about a variety of issues, not just wind turbines. We got the information up on our site, and we want to remind people that, uh, you know, every politician in that house is a person, and they have a family, so we don't want anything to get out of control. Instead, we want people to step back and look at the big picture, the bird's-eye view of what's happening with the government in Newfoundland and Labrador, and it really seems like this whole wind energy thing is more and more like a land grab. It's failing all around the world, and it just seems like a scheme by our government that'll see some people get rich and others drove into poverty. That's what the Great Rally Newfoundland and Labrador is about. How, who's going to be driven into poverty? <laughs> the common person, the person that's not privy and inside on these deals. Yeah, based on what though? What, what associated with these wind proposals would drive an individual into poverty? Like how, how so? What does that mean? Well, you know what, Patty, let's save that discussion for another day because I threw a lot of information on the table about infrasound, and that's where we'd like people to research. And go on our website, protectnl.com, and all the information will be there about the great rally in Labrador, and it's about demanding better, the people deserve better, the people of Newfoundland and Labrador deserve better and should demand better. And with the land grab concept, of course, the land is being leased to the companies and it's only for one specific uh, uh, issue and or project, in this case, wind turbines. So if anything goes sideways or south, the reclamation is on their dime and the land reverts back to the ownership of the government as a piece of crown land. So there, no one's going to get away with any land if it's not for the intended purpose as cited in their application. Right. Well, I'd encourage you to so step back just a little bit farther and look at it from a bird's eye view. When we talk about land grab, it's not just the wind turbines. There's mining companies moving in. Like we are, there's uh, salmon farms. We are losing. Newfoundland and Labrador is continuing to lose access to our crown lands more and more. And that's what the other thing that's happening here. There's going to be no hunting. Uh, how are we going to subsidize our food? Uh, what about getting our wood? Like, that's what we also mean when we talk about land grab. Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are slowly going to lose more and more access to our crown lands. We've got to keep thinking about the people. 
appreciate the time, Brenda. Thank you. Thanks. Thank take, you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. That's uh, Brenda Thanks. Kitchen with Protect NL. And someone just sent me another link. And, of course, there's just copious amounts of information about everything under the sun. This is uh, an article from the Journal of the Acoustical Society of America talking about exactly that. The title of the paper here is Annoyance, Perception, and uh, Physiological Effects of Wind Turbine Infrasound. So I'm... The basic introduction here says that no real measurable uh, impact when they divided by two groups and had the indoor and outdoor impact of infrasonic sound, so 20 hertz and lower. And, you know, again, Brenda's doing what she thinks is best for her, her group, and the people of the province and protection of land and access to land and fair ball. Because if we don't ask the questions, we're destined to get things wrong. But when it comes to health impact, so, oh, I... I I dropped her. Dave, uh, Dave wanted me to put Brenda on hold. Because whether it be Des McGraw, or we'll see if we can get someone from some of these large institutions that has the academic horsepower and the research that has been done in uh, required laboratory settings, see if we can't get to the bottom of these things. Because again, asking questions doesn't make anybody a bad person. In fact, we should be asking the questions. But we really do need to be uh, very steadfast in getting accurate information when it comes to impact on health because we can understand the impact on hunting and wildlife and flora and fauna and water and access to and the leasing of crown land. We can understand those things. Well, most of us can understand those things far easier than we can wrap our minds around some really, I would imagine, complex scientific issues as it pertains to people's health. But we'll try to get the information out there as accurately as we can on that issue and whatever else you want to talk about right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Roy. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, thanks. How are you doing? I'm good, Patty. Patty, I'm calling about the uh, critical state of the card in 3DS. I'm calling from Long Harbor, by the way. Uh, Connection's not uh, great, uh, Roy. Are you uh, able to either pick up the receiver or change something so we can hear you clearly? Uh, I, I'm, 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 I'm on a cell phone. I mean, I'm in the boat here now. It's not great, but... Uh, okay, I, I can hear you a little clearer now. Go right ahead. Yeah. Patty, uh, for starters, the harbour seals, like, uh, I'm underwater nine months a year. I do the green crab for DFO and that, and uh, the harbour seal in the mouths of the rivers. I, I spoke to you on this before. Right? I had Todd O'Brien from... Uh, the fisherman's broadcast out, and uh, there was supposed to be uh, biologists, seal biologists, show up and show, you know, even when the salmon are going up, like there's anywhere from 20, 30, 40 harbor seals in the mouths of the rivers, and now, you know, they're still there. We're even seeing uh, harp seals that you don't usually see in uh, until March, right? So, I mean, the destruction they're doing to the cod and the crab and whatnot, I mean, they've never in their past. Uh, I don't know. It seems like it's it's it's, it's going on uh, deaf deaf ears, you know. Uh, you know, like I said, someone is underwater uh, nine months, years, you know. And I've been fishing fifty plus years, you know. I'm in my late sixties. Uh, I'm seeing what's going on, and, and it don't seem like anyone's going to do anything about it. What does do anything about it mean? Are you saying that, for instance, in other parts of the world, they absolutely do call sea lions and seals because of the uh, predators that they are? So what are you suggesting could or should be done? Well, Patty, uh, about 40 years ago, I done an industrial sanit- uh, quality control industrial sanitation course in uh, in the fisheries college, uh, and, and we put a harbor seal on the table, and you know what was full of uh, the worm? That's where the worm comes from, from the harbor seal, only the harbor seal, right? Mm-hmm. And by the way, like what he said, they're on the endangered list. 
you know, the harm to their doing, and they on the endangered list. The fisherman is on the endangered list, in my opinion. You know, and it's just, it's just like you know, they're, they're so protected, right? Yeah, look, I wonder would there ever be political appetite for exactly that, a call of the the seal population? Like, just think back to 1992. We were talking about maybe 2.5 or 2.7 or 8 million seals out there, and now we're talking about upwards of 8 million. And so obviously it has an impact on the uh, strength of whatever species, uh, the, the stock. So I get it. I know where you're coming from. But unless there is that political move towards a call for the sake of, because unless there's some expanded markets and people are actually willing to go out and take the number of seals you're allowed to take per annum, which we currently do not, I just don't know where we go next, to be honest with you. But I understand the issues that you're talking about because obviously, like a, fam- a politician famously once said, they're not eating Mary Browns. 100%, uh, Patty. Like, you know, uh, I, you know, I've called in this several times. and I've had CBC out, uh, you know, the seals are... Uh, they're even, they're even eating the lobsters. When the lobsters are molding, I've seen them come up, you know, with the lobster in their mouth. Like, they're eating everything in their path. Uh, you know, uh, so they shouldn't be on the endangered. Like, why are you allowed to kill the damn thing? I'm not a lover of them. I, I've had a sea license about 45 years. I never made enough money in my son to buy a good, uh, I don't know what. Like, uh, uh, the, the price is not there. Uh, your boat insurance, uh, your bullets, uh like there's no incentive to, uh, to to be added, like, and it's 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 it's, it's crazy. Well, I mean, we put a bounty on coyotes, right? So there are examples where government has acknowledged a problem, uh, a problem predator, and done something about it. So if they can make that move with coyote, it's wonder why they can't extend that consideration to other species which have proven to be problematic when we talk about the strength of the stock or the rebound of a stock, and that would be a seal, for one. You know, like we talked about off the top, there's only so many things that the government can do when we talk about, say, for instance, Atlantic cod and 3PS. It's either total allowable catch or deal with the predators. And unless we do one or the other, we're not going to do much in the way of rebounding because the government cannot control in any short order the temperature of the water or the uh, phytoplankton or anything else. So there's only a couple of things they can do if they're going to take these considerations actually seriously. Uh, Roy, pardon me, anything else about seals? Because I want to ask you about the green crab. Uh, Patty, for starters, uh, there won't be a total allowable catch if they don't deal with the predator. Like, I am, my blood, like, I, I see those damn things every day, and they got more rights anyway. The green crab, yes, I, I'm doing the green crab. Uh, they're starting to slag off now because the, the water's getting cold, but uh, I land about 100,000 pounds a year. I, I'm at it nine months. It's not a lot, five, six, seven, eight hundred pounds a day, sometimes, you know. Uh, I, I haul them twice a day in uh, June and July when they're molting because each uh, each green female green crab has 200,000 eggs with a 1% survival rate. So that would be 2,000 per green crab. So uh, they live to be uh, five years old. And uh, But anyway, I've I, I got them down here in Long Harbor, but I don't know about other places. But they're, uh, they're a bad predator to do because they... Uh, they eat the eyes out of the lobster when it's molding and, of course, eat the eggs, and the, the, lobster, the green crab survives and the, the lobster dies. And they're killing the eelgrass? There's lots of issues with, with the green crab. Killing the eelgrass. Everything spawns in eelgrass, I know. Like I, I mean, those uh, Japanese fukui pots, that's what I catch the uh, green crab in. Like, I've got tiger shrimp and little hake, uh, rainbow trout, uh, Oh, dozens, dozens of different species. Like everything thrives in, in, in that eelgrass, and and that's in the bottom of Long Harbor. That's just the same as a a farmer was going along with his side, and 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 you know the, the grass is all piled up in the beach, right? It's a terrible thing. But anyway, uh, LA is doing their part to uh, 
to cut down on them. I've been doing this now for about uh, 15 years, right? Do you know how many people are, are, are also at the green crab? Because we know they're invasive species. They multiply like rabbits. So are, are very, very many people doing what you're doing? Do you happen to know? I am, I'm the only one along here. I think there's someone in Placentia doing it and probably Swift Current. Not a lot that I know of because uh, I don't think they're in Fortune Bay. Like Placentia Bay is the... Uh, it's the place they're most plentiful because of you know they come in in the ballast tanks, the ships, the tankers, or from valet years ago, whatever. Uh, anyway, to end up petty about uh, 15 years ago, I'm a hunter, of course, so I uh, I shot some ducks at the end of this there, and I had a new motor there, so I uh, I didn't want to hit my blade. So anyway, I went down that evening to get there a couple hours after when the water fell to, to, to retrieve the ducks, and I, I see the green things running over the bottom. I said, "Jesus, about that? I never." Uh, I've never seen that before. This was a green crab. So I, I dipped them in the dip net. I put them in my shed for, I think, 20, 21 days, three weeks. Uh, they stayed alive in, in the cool, of course. They stay alive in the cold. They want to stay alive in the heat. DFO came and got them, and they lived, I think they lived a month out of the water. It's a long for them. So that'll tell you how uh, they're aliens, no doubt. What happens to the green crab after you catch her? Are they just... Buried uh, or comes and picks them up and, and they crush them and they're used in the nurseries for fertilizer or farmers or whoever wants them. Great fertilizer, by the way, for uh, for farmers, right? Interesting. I had no idea someone was going at it because we were always told, you know, even DFO said, even though they're invasive and they're a massive problem, people were told not to do anything about it. But I guess there's an actual license, and you've been hired to do exactly this. So I'm glad to hear it because the pervasive nature of them in Placentia Bay is off the charts. Well, Paddy, £100,000 a year for 15 years, that'd be £1.5 million. So uh, you do the math on that. And like I said, uh, when they're when they're molting us, when they're spawning, I, I uh, you know, you, you catch one crab, you're you're, you're taking 2000 But just imagine how plenty they are there. Like, you know, they're, I uh, had a set of moose antlers one time, and I wanted to get the fur off, like I wanted it for a trophy. And I uh, I threw them overboard uh, on a line and a buoy, and I left for about two weeks. So I went back to my sonny man, uh, if you sandblast, it wouldn't be any cleaner. They hit the fur, the skin, or something else. Sure sounds like it. Uh, Roy, glad you called the show this morning. Anything, anything else before we go? No, that's it, Patty. You have a great weekend, buddy. The very same to you. Thank you. Okay, Take care. Bye-bye. And, you know, when it comes to the eelgrass, we actually had a researcher on this program, I don't know, Dave, I'm going to say last month sometime, and her name was Sydney Sullivan, pretty sure. Or No, it wasn't Sydney Sullivan. It was one of her co-researchers. Rebecca Brushin with the Ecology Action Center, exactly right. They're doing a study on eelgrass meadows, and particularly out in Grossmore National Park at this moment. It's going to take three years to complete it. But the eelgrass is an aquatic plant, obviously. But as Roy described, the importance of it in the ocean and for the incubator that it is, not only for carbon sink, but of course all of the species that eelgrass is the key to them. So... I mean, with green crab or whatever else is impacting the loss of eelgrass on coastlines around the world, apparently, but specifically they're starting their research in Grossmore. That was interesting. And we'll follow up again with Rebecca when they get a little further along in their data entry. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, plenty of time for you. The topic, entirely up to you. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Dean, here on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Very well. How about you? I can't complain. I can't believe this. So we're almost 50 years of listening to Open Line and having never called in and 
this is twice in one week. Um, it's uh, a little surprising. But the uh, reason why I'm calling, I wanted to call follow up to my uh, conversation uh, that uh, we had on uh, Tuesday regarding the uh, early playing of uh, Christmas music. Yeah. Um, just to uh, to remind folks, I guess uh, when I called, I was uh, well, I was poisoned to quote poor Nanny Rogers, uh, shout out Nanny Rogers in heaven, um, about the uh, the early onset. It was almost like the last note of the last post hadn't finished before we're listening to Frosty the Snowman. Then I thought, you know what, it's a little too early. So um, I decided to call in. And, and in our, when I called in in our discussion, we had talked about our favorite Christmas songs. You had mentioned Christmas in Clarny, great tune. And, and I had mentioned Fairy Tale New York, but of course, you know, anyone who's who's familiar with that song knows that it is kind of riddled with some inappropriateness and Tis and that. like. Yep. And uh, when it does get played on Main Street Radio, uh, it, it, it kind of gets beeped and, and just, you know, uh, it's all right. So um, surprisingly enough, not 24 hours after we called, um, a parody to Fairy Tale of New York uh, was dropped uh, by a couple of uh, football players of all of all sorts uh, by the name of Jason and Travis Kelsey. Now uh, they, uh, they they released a tune called uh, Fairy Tale of Philadelphia, and uh, the uh, the song is uh, you know it's it's a, it's it's a more modified version, a more radio friendly version. Uh, it's uh, the uh, politically incorrect language and such is uh, is not part of that, but uh, it's uh, it's about uh, Philadelphia. Uh, uh, fun fact: uh, next to Newfoundland, Philadelphia is the only place in North America that actually celebrates mummering. Believe it or not, but uh, I digress. But uh, to get back to uh, Fairy Tale New York, so uh, uh, Jason and Travis are both uh, football players. Jason is a big burly center who plays for the Philadelphia Eagles and uh, surprisingly enough was just recently nominated as Sexiest Man Alive. Yep. No figure. And uh, his brother Jason uh, is a uh, wide receiver for the uh, Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah, he's a tight end. Yeah. Tight, tight end, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, obviously well accomplished there and uh, Apparently, he started dating this uh, the singer. Maybe some people have heard of her, Taylor Swift. Yep. So uh, they uh, they came up with this this song, uh, "Fairy Tale in New York," and it's uh, our fairy tale in, in Philadelphia. Sorry, so, and it's a great tune. Uh, and I certainly uh, would uh, suggest anyone uh, who's into the uh, you know into fairy tale in New York because, like, let's let's face it, you know, when when you're having a few pops over Christmas, it's a, it's a great tune to. Uh, the belt out, but uh, you can do it now without the uh, the X-rated version of the some of the words it's there. But um, so I just wanted to uh, put that out there. So I find myself somewhat in a position where I have to uh, make a bit of a retraction here. So uh, if uh, VOCM must play Christmas music, I'm hoping that uh, they can at least include. Fairy Tale of Philadelphia in there, uh, Patty. I don't know if you got any pull with the programming folks there, but uh, it, would, it would be nice to see that included. And uh, just as another side of this, within 24 hours of this song being released, 
it uh, shot up to number one on iTunes. Uh, so it's uh, it's uh, it's certainly uh, with a bullet, as they say. Um, uh, great too. Okay. But, uh, so the program director is listening, and uh, he'll take it under advisement, I assume. And I will give it a listen just for the sake of this afternoon, sometime after the program. Anything else here, quickly, Dean, before we say goodbye? Yeah. No, I just want to say that it takes the song from a uh, an air version to a uh, uh, PG thirteen version. Uh, uh, let's face it, a song about hooking up, drinking, and fighting. It's hard to make a general version, but uh, nonetheless, a good tune. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. Have a nice weekend, Dean. Take care. You you too. Bye-bye. Bye now. Oops, uh, there we go. Let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the executive director at the Seaward Enterprises Association of Newfoundland and Labrador, Inc. That's Ryan Cleary. Good morning, Ryan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Do you and your listeners? Thanks for taking the call, as always. Sir. No problem. Before we get into price-setting stuff, uh, any update on the move for a, from a not-for-profit to a for-profit co-op? Any traction? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I'm working on it. Um, I've um, ever since I was on your show, um, and we put the word out on social media. I have been contacted by enterprise owners right around the province. There is real interest in a co-op. Uh, for Newfoundland specifically, similar to the Labrador Fishing Union Shrimp Company for Labrador. Uh, we've scheduled a, uh, we're putting together a steering committee, which is going to be tough to do because there's so much interest in it, but we'll, we'll get it done. We're going to meet in the first week uh, in December. It will be an in-person meeting uh, in central Newfoundland, and then we'll basically lay out everything there from, from bylaws to a business plan, uh, we will be off to the races in the first week of uh, in the first week of December. Sounds good, and I look forward to seeing what happens on that front. And as I've mentioned many times, not only inside the fishery, I'm surprised co-ops. Now, I guess there are some hesitancies at the governmental level for more and more co-ops, but it looks like they work, and they're beneficial for all hands who are members of. So we'll see where this one goes. Okay, let's move on to the price-setting update. You know, I guess the details are pretty scanty at this point, but the new plan will be in place, we're told, by January, and just some very vague references to... You know what is what's coming because to me it, it seems pretty fundamental. It's going to be based on a percentage of the market price associated with harvesters and/or processors, and maybe a sliding scale to uh, deal with market volatility, increases or decreases. So, your take? And Patty, thank you for asking me that question. But before I get to that, I'd like to have a few words first about the 3PS COD stock, and sure. the news came out about that this week as well. So in terms of 3PS COD, that's the COD stock off South Coast Newfoundland, as you know, as most of your listeners know. This is year 20, uh, This is your 23 of that stock of that COD stock being in the critical zone. And then DFO Science obviously gave the briefing yesterday. There was no multi-species, as you said in your preamble this morning, there was no multi-species survey in, in 3PS this past spring. There's been a problem with science ships, as you know. And I listened in yesterday on that uh, technical briefing, DF, DFO Science good people they said not to worry the assessment model fills in 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 gaps in science with information from the sentinel or chest fisheries that, that sort of thing my point is patty i listen to dfo science and, and you hear that they're on top of the stock and the science gaps are being filled and again these are nice people it all sounds reasonable but then you look at the reality patty there was a moratorium on 3ps cod in 1993 the year after northern cod moratorium the 3PS fishery, cod fishery, opened up again in 97 with a 10,000-ton quota. That quota went all the way, went, went as high as 30,000 tons 
In 2000, the stock went into the critical zone. The quota tanked after that, dropping to as low as 1,342 tons for each of the last three years. There's no signs of improvement in the near future. Now, that's the word from, from DFO this week. There's no signs of improvement in the, near, in the near future. From my perspective, Patty, DFO has not been on top of that stock in terms of science. As a result, it hasn't been on top of that stock in terms of management. And this is the stuff that boils my blood as a Newfoundlander. DFO, as manager of our commercial stocks, has failed. There's no other way to put it. One of the only one of the only consistent success stories in the management of our commercial fisheries, and you heard it this morning, Patty, the, the caller just before uh, the 10 o'clock news, is SEALs. That's the only real consistent success story in our commercial fisheries is SEALs. So I want to make that point to all your listeners. Because the point can't be lost that our stocks, our COD stocks, uh, the 3PS stock in particular, uh, has 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 not turned around since the moratorium in 1993. I think that DFO has to be held to account for this. You know, DFO has lovely people, lovely science people. It's great to hear them say they're on top of it. But again, Patty, the proof is in the pudding. They're not on top of it. So I just want to make that point. The second point. Uh, let me there. let me pick up on that for a second, though. When it comes to DFO and SEALs, I mean, it's not going to be a DFO-led decision. This will be absolutely a political decision if there's going to be any move on the SEAL population. So DFO and the important work they do, fair enough, and being able to monitor and compile data regarding the strength of all the species out there and their stock. But when it comes to if there's going to be ever, ever a move made on the seal population, DFO can do whatever they want with the seal summit and they can try to uh, collect the data and do a fairly accurate headcount, but it's going to be a political decision. It's not going to be a departmental decision, is it? No, no, you're right, Patty. It's going to be a political, it's going to be a political uh, decision, but then when it comes to DFO science overall, DFO is not on the ball. The science ships uh, have been in a ridiculous state in, in terms of passing the torch to the new ships. They, DFO wasn't on the ball with any of that. We have to demand better for our wild commercial fisheries. The, the province, the federal government, in terms of the East Coast fisheries, is all over aquaculture and fish farming. But we can't forget our wild fisheries, and we can't let DFO off the hook for the lack of science and the, and the ridiculous shape of the management. The second, in, re, in regards to your question, that, that review committee report came out yesterday on, on, on fish pricing, or it came out Thursday. Um, the first thing that I want to point out, Patty, is, is the report said, the, the first thing the report pointed out is that our fishing industry is critically weak. That's, that's the report's words, critically weak. They, all said, they also said the industry needs rebuilding. I couldn't agree more with that, Patty. So the report recommended a formula for setting the price of crab for setting the price of all species. Right now we have formulas in place for, for halibut, for lumpfish, and lobster. They're agreed to formulas. That's how the price of those three uh, species is set for the inshore fleet. I agree with the report on that point. But, but Patty, and you mentioned this in your preamble as well, there's no way to guarantee a fair market share to the inshore fleet, a, a fair share of the market return, unless processing companies produce the market receipts, the price that they sell, the fish for any formula not based on the market price that the fish actually sells for the way i see it it would be a magic formula in terms of numbers and credibility market receipts are the only way to address the absence of trust and start rebuilding the industry like that review committee says must happen the industry must be rebuilt you can't do that without trust 
the final point, Patty, on that review committee. So the review committee says the fishery, we need, I, I, I'm not sure if you read the report yesterday. It, it's um, pretty detailed. It's complicated. It's full of all kinds of formulas. But one of the last points that that uh, report said was that we need joint management in the fishery, like in the oil and gas industry with the Canada Newfoundland Labrador Offshore Petroleum Board, like, like the way they manage oil and gas off our shores. It, it's jointly managed. And, and the committee said that fish should be, too. It should be jointly managed. Now, Patty, I'd go a step further, and I'd pull a Quebec. Now, one of these days, the way I see it, Newfoundland and Labrador is going to have to grow up as a province and take control of our resources. Now, I don't think Quebec jointly manages anything with the government of Canada. What the report didn't mention, they did mention joint management, but, joint management, but they didn't mention the cartel-like behavior by the companies. The, the intra-fleet, and you and I have spoke about this before, is completely under, control, under the control of the companies. The review committee almost seemed afraid to upset the processors. No mention of market receipts, no mention of the cartel, but at a certain point, Patty, all of this is going to have to be dealt with. I appreciate the time this morning. I gave the report a cursory glance. I've got a lot on my plate, but I, it's part of my reading list for the weekend. Can I make one Sorry. more point, Patty, on something you said earlier this week? Sure, quickly. You mentioned the Atlantic Fisheries Fund. All that funding came out uh, this week. And, uh, and you meant, what you mentioned earlier this week was that when that fund was initially mentioned, it was specifically for Newfoundland and Labrador as compensation because this province is the only province in Canada that, that gave up a constitutional right as part of the Canada-EU free trade deal a few years ago, and that's minimum processing requirements. So we were initially, we were the only one that was, we were supposed to be compensated for that, Newfoundland and Labrador, but then they expanded to the Maritimes, and now you see uh, money going into aquaculture, not the wild fisheries. A couple of years ago, OCI got $10 million to build a new packaging plant with Atlantic Fisheries Fund, uh, fund, fund money. They're building that plant not in Newfoundland and Labrador, Patty, as you know, but in Nova Scotia. I see that as a slap in the face. I still see it as a slap in the face to Newfoundland. I'm a, I'm a Canadian, Patty, and I've always been a proud one, but I am not happy with how they treat our commercial fish, fisheries, and I see that as Canada's shame. Have a great weekend. Pat. Yeah, you too. Uh, so it was October 29th of 2013 that that initial $400 million was announced. And, of course, it was applauded at the time, not just the fund itself, but the easing or the removal of tariffs for our exported seafood into the European Union. Then, of course, that went away and was sort of really kind of silly stuff. They say they couldn't justify it any longer because there hadn't been a careful market analysis of the value of the minimum processing requirements. Well, if that was the case, then how did the announcement ever happen in the first place? You know, it was all kind of ridiculous. And now, of course, it's $400 million over seven years for Atlantic Canada. And in the initial $400 million, it was, I think, 280 or 290 was all federal monies. So, anyway, strange turn of events. Yeah, anyway, Patty, Newfoundland and Labrador got the short end of the stick on the fisheries again. And that's what has to stop. You want, we want to rebuild the fisheries. You've got to address our relationship with the government of Canada on the management of our fisheries as well. Appreciate Thanks the time. Thanks, Ryan. Bye-bye. Ryan Cleary is the ED of CNL. Let's take a break. Maggie's next. She wants to talk about the Seniors Advocate on Poverty Reduction, the report that came out on Tuesday. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Maggie. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. I uh, wanted to talk briefly about what that lady, a Seniors Advocate, Susan Walsh, I think. That's right. What she said a couple of days ago, I've been kind of struggling with whether or not to even call in in the last couple of days because I feel like, you know, I don't need to be complaining and bothersome and stuff. But what she says 
everything that she said was 100% truth and I'm one of those seniors that she talked about. Like I have had recently to take money more than once from groceries, which I don't really get a lot of anyway, and from my light bill to pay for medications. And I decide, okay, do I take the medications to keep me alive or do I get the groceries or do I take money from my light bill and risk getting my power cut off? And if I got my power cut off, then, then they automatically switch back to the landlord and I could get evicted. So all this has been churning around in my head for so long. And, yeah, most of the time, I know there's a lot of seniors, hundreds of seniors out there like myself, tea and toast. I'm a diabetic. i got to have a little bit more of a variety of food than tea and toast. But affording healthy food, that's a joke. And I'm sick and tired of hearing people say, oh, if seniors only ate healthier and better and got more active. Well, some of us can't get physically active, and most of us can't afford healthier food. So, like, you know, people like, oh, you know, the, the strain on the health system is mostly due to seniors. No, it's not. <sighs> Sorry, Patty. I'm just... Oh, well, I, I don't know if people say that as clear as that, but I think it is pretty widely understood that the likelihood of more frequent interaction with the healthcare system increases as we age. Uh, I think that just kind of stands to reason. I don't think anyone blames uh, the segment of uh, society that are seniors on healthcare costs and wait times and struggles and shortages. I don't think... That's certainly not how I hear it. No, I don't mean the callers to the OCM. I mean, like, the general population. You hear them when you're out to the clinic somewhere or you're at the pharmacy. You hear people talking among themselves, and this is the kind of things are being said, right? Okay. So, I don't know. I thank God that I didn't even know there was a seniors advocate till a couple of days ago. I mean, I listen to BOCM every day of the week. I don't always call in because sometimes I'm just not well enough to call in. And I apologize for having to disconnect this morning because I was stomach sick. No, no worries. Uh, this is actually the second seniors advocate. When the appointment first came to place, it was uh, uh, Dr. Suzanne Brake was the seniors advocate. We he- we had her on the program many, many times. And whenever there's something to discuss with uh, Susan Walsh, we reach out to her. She's always very generous generous with her time. So we try to keep that advocacy's uh, work on the front burner because, of course, it, it's important. Most definitely. Like, I got to get more diabetic medication now, and I don't know how I'm going to do it. I got a light bill, almost $400, because I had to let it get that high in order to get my medications, or I wouldn't be here to make this phone call. And it's nerve-wracking. At 66 years old, you can't get the very smallest basics. You can't get the medication that helps you get from one day to the next. And if it wasn't for my medical conditions, I'd be still out working happily to be out working. Well, that's not possible now or in the near future for me. Well, inside the recommendations, of which there are 12 and five key focus areas, and one of that is exactly that, medical care costs. And she addresses that very succinctly in the report. Then add to it food mm-hmm. costs, cost to prevent illness, uh, insufficient pension benefits, and uh, home care. Yeah. So we'll follow through with the government, you know, on what, how they read these types of reports, because that's one of the issues with the advocates' offices. They do really critically important work, but of course, they're not champions for one individual case. They're champions for causes and what affects the majority, whether it be children and youth, when we talk with the child and youth advocate, and of course, with Susan Walsh and her work as a seniors advocate. The problem becomes that they don't have any legislative authority to push their recommendations forward. It's simply exactly that, and no more. 
it's a recommendation for government to consider. But some of these things, and even though the government says, in addition to the uh, children and adult poverty reduction strategy that was announced last week, there's one coming from senior for seniors. Be really curious to see how many of the recommendations and specific issues like uh, increasing the threshold for people to access the maximum seniors benefit, whether there's going to be something about reintroducing food delivery model that happened during the pandemic, whether there's going to be some additional coverage for medical care costs, those types of things. We're, we're 100% going to follow through on them. Uh, Maggie, before we say goodbye, would you like to add anything else this morning? Well, just very quickly, I'll add in about, like, uh, I talked to my pharmacist about the uh, prescription drug plan for seniors. Yep. Uh, I applied for that back in early September. I knew it was going to take four to six weeks, but after six weeks was up, I heard nothing. So I called the Stevenville office and I spoke to a lady who does the processing or whatever, and she said it was going to take six to eight weeks. So I still haven't heard anything. And that's why in the last couple of months, my life bill has gone up and a little bit of money that I do occasionally have for groceries, that's not possible. And I, I don't know what to do. But I'm running out of my diabetic medication and I live alone, just me and my dog. Maggie, I wish you well, and hopefully the type of uh, issues that you're experiencing and you're not alone, hopefully government understands and gives some really careful consideration that the work that Susan Walsh has done in this report, because the numbers are alarming, to say the least. Uh, you yeah. take good care of yourself. I appreciate the call this morning. Thank you, Patty, for taking my call, and have a great weekend. Same to you, Maggie. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. You know, there's also, inside the world of uh, home care, so this province is one of six provinces and territories in the entire country where people have to pay a copay for home care programs. In other places, specifically, she looked at British Columbia. In that province, if you're receiving federal assistance, like the GIS, for instance, if you're qualified and eligible for the GIS, you get guaranteed free home care. When we talk about the uh, want for people and the cost evaluation, uh, cost-benefit analysis of staying in your own home and what it takes versus people being institutionalized in a long-term care facility, maybe just maybe because their medical condition got to the point where they needed to be in a congregate living setting. But if they had uh, the additional you know, couple, three, five hours in their own home, I mean, they'd be happier and healthier, closer to family in the community that they're familiar with, and it probably comes with added cost savings. It's always unfortunate when we add cost into health, but of course, everything comes with a cost, financially and otherwise. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Okay, let's keep rolling. Line number three. Charlie, you're on the air. Uh, Good morning, Patty. Morning. Patty, do you remember those Teflon pans that were out some years ago, uh, uh, the eggs wouldn't stick to them and so on? Yeah. Yeah. At some point, uh, there was warnings about them. There was some chemical in in the uh, coating on them, and uh, a lot of people threw them out. We recently bought one and uh, had the same kind of properties, but I've got no idea if if the chemicals they talked about then are... uh, are in that product or not. I, I know it's an excellent pan to use. But it, there's, there was a group, I saw this story a while back, there was a group of chemicals, there is a group of chemicals called the Forever Chemicals, uh, PFAS. Have you heard of them? I have so. Now, according to what the program is saying, there's a few of them uh, have been banned, but most of them have not. 
and they haven't really been tested for uh, uh, safety all that much. Apparently they cause uh, uh, liver kidney disease, uh, thyroid problems, immune system the vaccines, weakening the immune system and so on. And according to this, uh, this lady who studied them and who was trying to get them banned, uh, they're in so many things, they're, they're in everybody's uh, system anyway. Uh, they're mainly for uh, products like, I, th- I think they said rain, to keep the rain off or let, let it flow freely, uh, drain, and the other one I just forget offhand. Anyway, um, I thought about our society. We, we eat so much stuff and we've got no idea very often what, what's in that and the products that we use. And, of course, there's only two ways that you... Uh, you get control of this. One is through government regulation, making sure that they they do the proper testing on these things before they're released. And the other is through education. And you know I feel about that. We learn all kinds of chemistry in that, but, uh, and and, and I'm sure there's nothing wrong with that. But how often do we learn about uh, the chemicals that are out there and the harm that they can do us and what we can do to protect ourselves? I'm not so sure how much anybody knows about polytetrafluoroethylene. The issue there, though, Charlie, if I remember correctly, the whole, the major concern was, is that not only necessarily about what chemicals may indeed be involved with Teflon, it was the heat with which people cook with these nonstick cookwares. So it becomes an absolute problem when it exceeds a certain temperature. I can't remember off the top of my head what that was. So that was always the warning put forward uh, or the advice given. When you use your nonstick, you use it at a medium or moderate temperature. When it is really hot, that's when the problems begin or start to manifest themselves with Teflon. That's that's a reminder. I I think I recall that as well. Anyway, they they showed a couple of organic farmers. I think it was in Ontario, a young couple in their uh, uh, mid-30s or so, and they had an organic uh, operation going. They had children. And in the normal bloodstream uh, of the average person, you would get about, I thought they said, five to seven. This guy was tested and this amount in his bloodstream, this organic farmer, was 3,600. That's how, how, how much it was. They, they were using sludge uh, for their fertilizer, that, that would be uh, from uh, municipality. And of course, this has been recommended for uh, organic farming uh, as, as a good way to recycle it. And basically he said, We've had to stop our operation. They were crying at, at the end because we can't subject our children to, to this kind of poison, this kind of food. And that was just one example. And they brought on a dairy farmer. He was having the same problems. So I guess my message is, oh, oh, I should say, one of the worst products would be, uh, um, uh, my gosh, um, women use makeup. <laughs> Uh, especially eyeshadow and, 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 and the things you use on your face and that. This was a big source of them. And uh, you know a lot of people uh, love their makeup, right? 
So I thought I'd mention this just to see if anybody was uh, interested or had a conversation on it. And uh, before I go to something else, I don't know if you want to comment further on that. No, sure. I'm good with that. Uh, Now all of a sudden, this is what happens to me every day on the show. Someone brings something up that I hadn't thought about in a while. Next thing you know, my entire weekend is reading about things like Teflon, (laughs) right? And green crab and all the rest of it. So anyway, nature of the beast. i got to get away from from Montreal Canadian sometime, right? Well, fair enough. I will make time for my beloved Habs. Uh, But yeah, uh, the last comment on Teflon, because it is an important conversation. You can indeed look for uh, toxic-free chemical cookware. It's out there and it's labeled as such. If you have a piece of Teflon cookware that is like 10 years old or older, it's probably worthwhile to consider throwing that away. So says some of the reports that I had read in the years past. But I'll have another look, I suppose, over the weekend as to where some of those other chem- those chemicals are also present in the uh, products that we use. Thank you. Our new frying pan should be okay. Should be. Patty, uh, b- by the way, leaves the plane 3.30 today from Sweden. Any, anybody out there is interested? I thought it was five island time. Was what? I thought it was five o'clock island time, but it's three thirty. Is it? It's three thirty. It's 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 uh, one. one uh, was it two two? Yeah, two o'clock uh, Eastern and three uh, thirty. Okay, fair sure. enough. And and Sunday, it's even earlier. I believe it's in the morning. Anyway, um, the, the conversation that uh, people have been having re- regarding the Israeli mass and and the war over there. One thing I find is that uh, a lot of people don't seem to know. Uh, the background, and I, I don't want—I won't get into this in, in, in detail. But, but I'll mention a few facts that might uh, help with this. And, and, and I hope nobody thinks it's excusing Hamas and, and the awful things that they did. Um, the Balfour Declaration—I'm sure you've heard of—was uh, Lord Balfour back in 1919. He basically declared he, he was a British uh, uh, foreign minister. I think he was prime minister before that. He basically came out with a declaration saying that we need to create a state uh, for Israel in Palestine. And, of course, he became the hero of uh, Jewish people uh, thereafter. What most people don't know is the guy was a total anti-Semite. He didn't want Jews, especially Jews from Russia, coming into, in, 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 into Britain. So if, if they could arrange to have the, the, the homeland somewhere else and uh, keep the Jewish population down in, in Britain, that was apparently his main motivation. You can read up on this if you wish. Yeah, but this is as old as well, during the First World War or something, right? Yeah, that's 1919. Okay. Anyway, but this led up to the creation of it, his declaration, because that was signed on to by many other Western nations. And then in 1948, the UN took this up and they took a vote. And the state of Israel was declared, but the Arabs never accepted this. They saw it as a declaration of war. They even saw the Balfour Declaration as as a declaration of war. And the slogan became, uh, a landless people, uh, an empty land for a landless people. And of course it wasn't empty at all. It was uh, filled with uh, at least seven or 800,000 Palestinians. One article I wrote talks about the attitude they had to, it was like the attitude to indigenous people, uh, that uh, we would come in there and and really uh, uh, upgrade the place because the farming practices and that were, weren't that great and all this stuff. It was a typical colonial racist attitude, right? Anyway, when the war was fought in 1948, because the Arabs uh, immediately... Uh, 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 attacked Israel. 
after, uh, at the conclusion, when, when, when they were beaten badly, many thousands of Israeli, of uh, Palestinians were expelled. They were forced out of the places that was part of their land. It wasn't given to Israel. This was Palestinian land. And forever after, all the peace uh, deals they were trying to get, the right of return was the main sticking point, that they should go back to those villages that were indeed theirs. Uh, they were driven out by terror. They were driven out by force. Uh, th this, again, is uh, in the history books for anybody who wishes to read it. That was Israel's, I would call it, first big mistake. Now, just recently, they asked Netanyahu, uh, Netanyahu, about a two-state solution. Do you think that we, we should work towards that? He wouldn't reply, and I think that tells volumes. It's a plain to me and to anybody who's watching it, they would like to see the Palestinians expelled from Gaza. I mean, to hold off uh, humanitarian supplies for those hospitals and that. Uh, they could have gone in there like, like, like occupying forces have done and helped the local population and gained a bit of support instead of starving them out and, 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 and refusing to give hospitals fuel and so on. And even if they offer X number of hours a day for people to be able to leave, yes. that's easier said than done for many Palestinians, period. So anyway, I'm watching with uh, horror as we see what's unfolding there. And the prime minister just about said it the other day. He'd cease came out of his mouth before he said fire then he went on to garble a few words about what he was trying to say but he just about said he's gone for a ceasefire which of course I don't know why so many people are so loath to do because the issue is if you're all in for one side or the other then you're kind of missing the other half of the story where the attacks on humanity the devastation is real people will be either calling it uh, an actual genocide and to raise the peninsula the, the Gaza Strip period so I don't even know what to say about it anymore but I'm watching it with a a certain distinct horror. Charlie, I'm late for the break, but I'll give you the final thoughts. Go ahead. Well, it's clear to me that they would like to see the land emptied. Uh, the West Bank, they don't want to see that become the second state. Uh, many in the right-wing government have said, let's get them out, let's get them uh, over to Jordan somewhere. They want that whole area, and they are not interested in a two-state solution. This right-wing government there is, is uh, some people call it fascist. Uh, I don't know if I'd go that far or not. But Netanyahu is, is, is a main sticking point for any peace solution in that area right now, and everybody knows it. I don't know how much support he even has amongst his own population. He's got very little among his own population uh, for what he was trying to do before this war br br broke out. Uh, I would say if a, if a poll was taken over there, he wouldn't get 20 percent. But anyway, we leave it at that, I guess. His history is fascinating uh, as a politician. Yeah. I mean, some of his senior cabinet ministers are case studies in, whoa, what are we talking about here? But one of them has actually pretty much said, and this is, I guess, a paraphrase, but... When Netanyahu runs, he basically says, I'm the only one, we're the only party that can protect you from Hamas, right? So Hamas has been good for them, politically speaking. One of his senior ministers kind of said that Hamas is good for business. It ensures that our government will remain in place. I don't think they're really accurate, accurately reading the tea leaves on this one, but the devastation that has been wrought is just brutal. It's heartbreaking. I appreciate the time, Charlie. i got to get on. Okay, I, I think the Israeli uh, uh, government, uh, certain parts of it, are delighted with this war because it's giving them the excuse that they, they, they've wanted to uh, clear this place out and they have a great uh, excuse to do it right now. So I'll end with that. Appreciate the time, Charlie. 
Okay. Thank Take care. You. Bye-bye. Yeah. Complicated. You know, it's like a lot of things. It's really difficult to know exactly what's going on. You know, you'll hear some from so-called reputable outlets just really contradictory information. So that's why when we're trying to have, or even when I try to think about or have discussions or conversations about what's happening in Ukraine or what's happening in Gaza, it's hard to know what you're reading, whether it's been accurately disseminated, if it's uh, completely factual, if it's purposeful disinformation, because some of the things that we've seen, and as we've said many times, a lie has made its way all the way around the world before the truth gets out of bed. So sometimes you read something and think, well, that's it. That's the facts. I'm sticking with that, regardless if there's any further investigations or any further clarification or additional information. Uh, before we go, I didn't know if Charlie said that sludge is allowed and used in organic fr- farming practices, but this is from an organic farmer, Mark Wilson. He says sludge is definitely not allowed in organic farming practices. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the Liberal member for St. John's East, Kitty Vitti. He's also the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure. That's John Abbott. Good morning, Minister Abbott. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty, and how are you today? Very well, thanks. How about yourself? Very good. Very uh, interesting and concerning conversation you just had with Charlie I was listening to. So Yeah, a lot of meat on that proverbial bone. Before we get to the topic that you called about, which I'm not really sure what it is, is as the Minister of Transportation, you know, we, we know that there was a very serious collision on the Bjorn Peninsula Highway this morning. Callers are reporting very icy conditions. This is not in an effort to assign blame to highway depots or what have you, but what's the status of being prepared for the winter season? Because it's here. I mean, it's the snow has already fallen. Are the depots fully staffed up, maintenance and machinery all ready to go, especially in that area this morning? Well, we are certainly ready for for the winter season, and we're, as the, we announced there a couple of weeks ago, uh, we're bringing on our crews, we're making sure all our equipment is up and running, and then that is brought in uh, over the next couple of weeks. Uh, I don't have a, a, a report from the uh, situation on the Bjorn Peninsula yet as to if there were uh, any road conditions that we could have mitigated, but uh, once I find that out, I'll certainly let you know. But uh, our crews are ready. They're obviously look at the forecast and we make sure we've got the uh, the plows on the road, the salt uh, ready to go and uh, whatever else we need. So uh, uh, we, once we know the results and the RCMP will provide that, that to us, uh, we'll see what anything else we could have done or should do in the future. Uh, I'd like to get your thoughts before we move, uh, now I understand you want to talk about small business downtown, fair enough. When it comes to we moved away from 24-7 snow clearing but the conversation has always said that if there is an emergency then the Department of Highways will be able to respond. But of course, when we're talking about, for instance, an ambulance, the emergency is immediate. So how does 24-7 snow clearing work when we talk about emergencies? Because if I need an ambulance and the uh, highway is snowbound, then at some point, with time being of the essence, we've lost time. So how is it intended to work? And do you think, in your opinion, as the minister responsible, it does work? Well, the uh, approach here, of course, is, and the ambulance operators will know this, that if they are called out, and depending on the weather conditions and road conditions, uh, they will notify our depot. We'll make sure then we get the equipment out uh, to make sure, and almost to escort them so that they can get to uh, to, to the residence and or to the hospital as, as needed. Uh, so we're monitoring that. We make sure we got all our road, road advisories out, and then the crews are, are ready. Uh, but uh, we don't uh, commit to 24-7 uh, because we don't think that is needed. 
but uh, we will make sure that the uh, the operators, uh, ambulance operators, are supported in uh, doing the essential work that they definitely need to do. Uh, just for clarification, so if the RCMP said that road conditions, ice or otherwise, was a contributing factor to this collision, that becomes a formal investigation led by your department as to the operations of that particular highway depot? Is, yeah, is that accurate? Well, what we would look at then, if, if we could have been or should have been out earlier, then uh, we'll, we'll take that in and then uh, look at our operations to see make sure we, that doesn't happen uh, on a go-forward basis, for sure. Okay, so let's talk small business downtown. Well, uh, thanks, Patty, because one of the things I just want to talk about in terms of the District of St. John's East Kitty Vitty, and it really is, is a amalgam of very distinct areas, whether it's Signal Hill, Kitty Vitty, Churchill Square, the Rabbit Town, Georgetown, and downtown. But particularly for the downtown, where it's a very vibrant uh, part of our city, and really for the capital and for the province, lots of uh, you know active uh, art scene, cultural scene, restaurant scene, uh, bar scene and, and, and the like but what is happening now leading into the Christmas season I want to make sure uh, that I want to give a shout out to our downtown businesses which are over 75 uh, that are looking now getting ready for the uh, pre-Christmas shopping season and uh, tomorrow November 18th uh, there is the tax free day in downtown St. John so we want to make sure uh, those who are getting ready to do the, are doing their shopping that they consider obviously going downtown uh, you may have heard, I'm sure, and your listeners, uh, there's been some disruption of uh, in the Ducker Street area for the businesses there as we're doing the uh, renovations for the War Memorial, but that street is open, ready for business, uh, and uh, we want to give a, a shout-out to, to them for sure. And, of course, we got the restaurants, we got the bars, as I said, and obviously a lot of local entertainment that could really uh, be, uh, rely on the support for, for the shoppers. And then following that, next Sunday, November 26th, uh, we have the annual downtown St. John's Christmas Parade, and uh, we've been working with uh, with the uh, Downtown Business Association uh, to see how we can support uh, that uh, very uh, eventful, joyful activity. And uh, so Metrobus, for instance, will be doing their shuttle, uh, which will be on a load-and-go basis starting at 10 a.m. Uh, next Sunday. That's the 26th from either the Confederation Building or the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation Building on Columbus Drive. And we are asking, and the Downtown Business Association is asking that uh, folks, if they can, bring some non-perishable food items or monetary donations, and that'll be collected on the parade route. And of course, we want to make sure the kids get their, ready, their letters ready for Santa, because they can be uh, picked up uh, along the way. Uh, suffice to say, there's a lot of activity downtown, and there's a very vibrant uh, uh, part of our city and our economy, and I just wanted to give a shout out to, uh, to that area for for our, for our listeners. I think there's maybe a debate to be had with how vibrant the downtown is. Now, I know there's a cyclical nature of businesses coming and going and uh, buildings being boarded up and or renovated in the need. A lot of the authorities associated with relationships with the city, but some of the businesses that you mentioned, like, for instance, in the food and service industry, they're teetering. They really are. The Small Business Outlook for the Restaurant Association is not very helpful or pleasant. You know, some of that might be with the relationship with the NLC, for instance, and some of the fees associated with that business. So vibrancy might be a bit of a debate. Do you think, like, what's the province's role with small business in particular? Well, not, not only in the downtown core, because if you listen to the CFIB or others, they're worried about the vitality of their businesses long term. And I know some of that's about repaying loans with the federal government for pandemic supports and whatnot, but vibrancy is important in the downtown core, and I don't think it's as vibrant as people need it to be. 
Well, uh, you know, in terms of the vibrancy factor, uh, if you look at any time, if you go down on the weekends, certainly over the summer, uh, I mean, it's a mecca for our, for our tourists, certainly a mecca for folks that can come in from out of town who want to, you know, experience in something new, something different, uh, a very, very active arts and music scene. Uh, but we also recognize that the businesses, there's an ebb and flow in terms of new businesses starting, some closing down. Uh, obviously, the pandemic has had an post-pandemic, it certainly has has had an impact. And in terms of provincial government support, uh, we're in constant conversations with the Business Community Board of Trade of what measures we can do to su support them. Uh, so uh, we are looking at what if there is a tax relief issues, uh, we've looked at uh, insurance issues, all of those things, anything we can do. Uh, one of the success, the success stories, for instance, this past uh, uh, summer, uh, working with the George Street uh, Association, there was issues around safety and those kinds of things. We sat down with the association, uh, with, the, uh, uh, with the RNC, the City of St. John's and others to say how can we come up with a plan to make sure uh, those businesses thrive, uh, the, uh, their customers are feeling and patrons are feeling safe and that has worked out quite well. So I, my approach as the MHA is then to make sure we can bring that uh, kind of approach right across uh, the, the downtown uh, district uh, to support uh, business and identify issues uh, that need to be. We've cra we're cracking down on uh, graffiti, and the police have been doing a good job of making uh, holding people to account there. So that, those kinds of things are all uh, needed and are active. And as more issues ar arise, uh, we'll find those solutions and make sure uh, it is vibrant as I believe it is. Uh, as the minister responsible for the public procurement agency, is it possible, you know, when we hear some contracts that have been awarded, we'll hear, for instance, from Minister Osborne regarding virtual care and going back to the drawing board with an RFP for the urgent care center. Can you tell us the value of the contract for virtual care? No, I don't have the that number here in front of me. Uh, so there's a couple of processes. One is obviously the uh, the procurement legislation that we all have to, to follow. My department, uh, the health authorities, the school districts, uh, everybody in municipalities have to follow that. Uh, the the the. the uh, the trick and, and challenge at times is making sure you've got the right, the right uh, proposal out to meet uh, one your needs and the ability to the uh, uh, to re the respondent uh, 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 businesses to make sure they can, to, can meet uh, our needs and that varies at times. But uh, we are uh, the procurement agency will then oversee uh, any of those uh, activities if there are any issues, any challenges, uh, then they can intercede and rule uh, on you know in, in whether it's in favor of the of the uh, proponent or for the department putting out the uh, RFP, so uh, it's sometimes, particularly when you're doing new uh, procurements such as the urgent care center, you, we want to get it right, and uh, that's why at times you we end up pulling uh, a proposal until we can get it right, and then we'll go back out to uh, uh, to the community for for further bids. With the urgent care, there were seven bidders. The government said in a technical briefing that there was some nine hundred thousand dollars set aside to open it looking to rent an existing building i think of twenty thousand square feet so had to go back to the drawing board so what changed
change in that RFP? Is it an expanded budget item, or what did we get wrong in the first RFP because well, we were seven bidders? Well, what you will see from time to time is the proponent's ability to meet our uh, essential requirements. And some of that may be t- t- uh, very technical. Sometimes it's the location. Sometimes it's the actual cost uh, and then the operating cost. So all of that had to be uh, factored in. And there wasn't, in this case, as far as I understand, there wasn't a, a good alignment. So we had to go back to the drawing board, and then uh, uh, we will be re- uh, reissuing that uh, uh, that tender. And that's uh, that's and that's the way it should be. I appreciate the time this morning, Minister. We're late for the news, but uh, thanks for the call. All the best, sir. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. John Abbott's the member for St. John's East, Kitty Vitti, and the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure. Let's take a break. When we come back, there's a caller who wanted to talk about a rental concern, we'll talk about winter roads and road safety. There's an update coming about some uh, event coming up on the Southern Shore, and then whatever you want to talk about, don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning. How are you doing? Doing okay. How about you? Pretty good. I'm calling from Burnaby this morning. I... Uh I'm from St. John's. I was renting. I looked for a room to rent um, for when I come back. Um, it was on the 7th of November. Um, I found it. So I spoke to the person online uh, through texting. And um, she wanted 1350 a month for it. And she asked me for a deposit of $700. So I gave her $700. And then um, I think five days later, I phoned her and canceled it. And she told me that the $700 deposit sealed the deal, and I guess I'm not getting it back. Now, I couldn't give her a 30-day notice or a 14-day notice because I only talked to her seven days before. Is there any recourse? I don't know if it's an inn or an Airbnb, but uh, it doesn't sound right to me. I honestly don't know, but I don't think that should be allowed, uh, withholding of a deposit for something that you're not even going to use or take. I know. Okay. And I sent... So I sent her an email um, after the fact, and she said to me, "How?" Um, she said, um, "The deposit sealed the deal." Yeah, I'm not even sure what that means. So, is this? Yeah. Do you know? Is it a bed and breakfast? Is it an Airbnb? Is it a private-owned um, dwelling? When, when I went, when I went to send the money to her, it was, um, I think it was an Airbnb in Harbor Grace, but I was actually renting a place in. St. John's. So I think it's an inn or an Airbnb. Is she unable to even give you that basic information as to what you're actually more intending to rent? Did she give me, you mean like, uh, was I renting a room or an apartment or something? Yeah, like, I mean, mm-hmm. unless you even know what you're getting yourself into, and the way this sounds, that might not even be a real thing. It, well, it's a real thing because I, I actually was there um, in okay. October. All right. Yeah, so it's all legit. It's just that um, I, I sent her an email transfer and sent her the money, and then five days later I, I canceled it, and she said the $700 sealed the deal. Yeah, I, I'd need some elaboration on actually what that means because, I mean, I've had to cancel yeah. a night at an Airbnb because of air travel disruption, what have you, and the the yeah. airbnb was kind enough to you know cut me some slack. Here's what I'm going to suggest yeah. you do. So someone on this, uh, we actually talked to a fellow this morning who monitors or, pardon me, administers a Facebook page about residential tenancy things. Maybe, yeah. just maybe, if you post your question there, that Sherwin Flight or someone else who might be able to point you in one uh, direction 
or another, but I'm not entirely sure what to say about a withheld deposit. So the name of this yeah. Facebook group is Newfoundland Tenant and Landlord Support Group. Tenant Support Group? Yeah, it's Newfoundland, Newfoundland Tenant Tenants. and Landlord Support Group. Oh, and Landlord. Okay, support. Okay, good. Yeah. All right. Post the question there because these people, they're dealing with these related matters all the time, and they might be able to yeah. tell you where to turn. But uh, withhold yeah. deposit might be a different story than some of the issues that they mainly deal with. But I'd post it there. You're bound to get a better yeah. answer than I was able to supply. On, on their website, their, our policies, right in capital letters, deposits, no deposit required except for group bookings, bookings longer than one week or bookings more than one room. So it doesn't apply to me. Post that question there. And let me know what you find out, because I'd be curious to hear. Oh, no, most definitely. I'll be back online when I get it straightened out. I appreciate your time. Good luck with it. Thank you very much. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Yeah, withholding deposits, you know, they closed the deal. Didn't close any deal because the man never even set foot in the apartment as a renter. So what deal was actually closed? Uh, Let's keep going here. Let's go to line number five. Nick, you're on the air. How you doing, Patty? Doing okay. I uh, just heard you talking to the minister about the uh, plows and the highways and the uh, road conditions. Um, maybe he might want to take into effect that uh, we've got about 600, 700 cars coming out of the Combi Chance and the Boerm area every winter, and we run into the same issue every time. We don't see a plow till about 6, 6.30, 7 o'clock, and these roads are treacherous. Last year they were. Uh, this year, last week, we had a little snowfall there. There was not a salt truck to be seen. And a few cars were off the road in ditches and stuff. Uh, these are workers paying taxes, and, you know, we should get the right to have a safe road to drive on. I mean, there's amply. Do you want to see how many cars are there? they got a depot that's not too far from the parking lot, and they can uh, judge it from that. I mean, every morning at 6 a.m., we leave. Every evening, we arrive at uh, 6, uh, 6.30 p.m. So, I mean, uh, maybe they can judge it to the job sites, like Argent is another one. You know, these roads are uh, really treacherous in the, in the early mornings and uh, late evenings. No doubt they are. So your suggestion is with the depot within eyesight of the parking lots that they'll be able to understand when they need to be on the road to accommodate the shift change? Is that what you said? Well, they can accommodate, uh, I mean, when you look at the shift change, you know, if, you, if they talk to the sites and say, you know, uh, what kind of t- hours are you guys operating, at least then have a truck out, at least on standby, for uh, two hours prior to, uh, to us getting off. So it gives them ample time to get ahead of us and uh, get these roads salted or plowed or what need be. Fair ball, fair enough. I mean, road safety, regardless if it's someone traveling to visit their dad or to work or to go to a doctor's appointment or whatever the case may be, to having the roads ample coverage, whether it be for snow removal and for ice control, I mean, there's a question to be asked about what happened on the Bureau Peninsula this morning because we had people calling us yeah. as soon as the accident was reported talking about the icy conditions and the lack of attention too. So that's why I started with that question with the minister. Yeah, that was a good one. Uh, and just, you know, uh, we have emergency vehicles leaving our job site all the time with people going to Clarenville hospitals and stuff. So, I mean, you know, maybe that area should be kept prioritized, you know, in certain job sites. Uh, as you know, last year we had a major incident come by chance, and that was a major medical attention. It's a good thing it never happened in the wintertime where it could have been road conditions uh, hindering fellows getting to hospitals. Fair enough. All right, that's all I got to say, oh, Patty. Okay. And, uh, you have a good one. You too, man. Thanks, Nick. Thanks. All right, uh, let's take a break. Appreciate the patience of those in the queue. April wants to talk about the Cape Broil Fall Fair. Jim Dempsey, our, our friend from the uh, Wooden Boat Museum, wants to talk about a work boat show that's coming up. And Lisa's there to talk about medicine. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. April, you're on the air. Hi there. Hi. Thanks for having me today. Happy to do it. 
I'd like to let all your listeners know about the Cape Royal Fall Fair happening tomorrow on the beautiful southern shore. It's at the Cape Royal Community Centre, and it runs from 10 to 3 tomorrow. Children 12 and under are free to get in. It's going to be lots of vendors there. The Cape Royal Community Church Committee is having a lunch special, lots of baked goods so people can come out, have something to eat. There's 50-50 tickets and a door prize and uh, lots of baking to choose from to stock up for, uh, for, for the holidays and for Christmas. I'm going to be a vendor there. I'm going to be launching my third children's book tomorrow, so hopefully lots of people come out and have a chat. What's your last name, April? April Harvey. April Harvey, tell us about your book and then we'll get back to the other vendors, what people will be able to find at the fall fair. Okay, well, uh, I write children's books and my third book is uh, just recently published. It's called The Witch, Her Dog and the Unicorns and it features a silly German shepherd, Lance Larry, and Lance Larry doesn't know what unicorns look like, so it turns into a wonderful story about Newfoundland ponies. Terrific. Are all of your books based in Newfoundland lore? Yes, they are. Um, they've reached the Amazon Top 100 list for exploring Canada for children, so lots of Newfoundland content. And they all have uh, young readers' question and activity guides and an appendix so you get more information about terms and places that are brought up in the story. Very cool. So I just had a very quick Google. So are you also the author, make sure I'm on the right uh, April here, uh, author of The Witch, Her Dog, and the Fairies? That's it. Okay, That's cool. Me. Nice, good for you. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Okay, so that's your book, and hopefully people will enjoy it, as I'm sure they had the previous two. So what else will people see at the fair? Did you say it was basically a bake, uh, a bake, uh, what am I trying to say, a bake sale, or is there going to be all kinds of crafts? There's going to be all kinds of things there, so handcrafted items, knitted goods and crocheted toys, beautiful artwork. There's so many talented people here on the southern shore. We have jewelry, uh, Christmas decorations, Mary Kay and Scentsy are going to be there too, so lots of different things to attract people. Terrific stuff. Uh, anything else you want to tell us this morning? No, I think that's it. Just hope everyone comes out. If we're supposed to have the, the nice weather tomorrow, it'll make a nice drive up the shore. Sounds about right. Love the southern shore, as most everyone who visits does. Uh, good, for, good for you for calling this morning, April. Good luck with the book, and hopefully the fair is a roaring success. Thank you very much. You have a great day. You too. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Here we go. Cape Broil, the fall fair. Let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Lisa. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Um, we had spoke back at the end of uh, September when my father, Jamie O'Flaherty, when he was moved from Carbonier Hospital to Buren Hospital as a palliative care patient. And unfortunately, he did pass uh, on September 29th. So the reason that I'm calling again today is to be trying to be his voice so that this doesn't continue to happen. When I heard the news yesterday about in the House of, uh, House of Commons, House of Assembly, whichever it's called, with Tom Osborne, and that this is still continuing to happen. There are still patients being diverted from Carbonier Hospital to Buren because there's no internal medical professionals there. It's, this, needs to, this needs to be fixed. Buren is too far away, and we need to. Uh, I, I need to be a voice. I need to. I need to be a voice for this because it, it, this can't continue to happen. First off, uh, I'm sorry for your loss. My condolences. I would have exchanged many notes with your dad over the years, so mm -hmm. I'm sad to hear this. When we talk about internal medicine, of course, there's a number of subspecialties inside the world of internal medicine. So, what type of doctor in particular would your father have needed? 
when I mean he when he was in Carbonier Hospital he was in the ICU he had been admitted because he had uh, um, an infection in his blood this is what uh, I mean originally I mean his diagnosis he had pancreatic cancer but when he was admitted to ICU in September it was he had an infection in his blood and was being treated he had low blood pressure he was on a special medication to help bring his blood pressure up and had to be had to be monitored very closely and when the locum had finished in September, that's when he was moved from Carbonier to uh, Buren because there was no combination closer of an ICU bed and internal medicine doctor. But you now there was a, one I understand, there was a heart patient that was recently moved to Buren because, again, there was no internal medicine doctor. Would that concern and uh, physical issue require multidisciplines? You know, because whether it be between an oncologist or a hematologist or whatever the case may be. So is it the need for a variety of specialties that would have been able to keep your father in Carbonair, or am I over-reading it? We had asked that when the when management had brought myself and my mom into the hospital to let us know about the plans to move him to Buren. Um, we had asked, like, he was seeing other doctors there. He was like, why, why, why couldn't he stay there but be under another doctor's care? And all they kept saying to us was that because he needed this internal medicine doctor, that they would not provide any clarification as to why he couldn't be under another doctor's care. Okay, because internal medicine is a big catch-all, isn't it? I mean, we can be talking about uh, cardiologists and gastroenterologists, hematologists, infectious disease doctors, oncologists, rheumatologists. So, I mean, it's a huge discipline with a variety of subspecialties. That's why I was curious because I wonder what we were talking about when we look at all of those disciplines, just where we are as a province, not even just in one hospital, but where we are as a province with the numbers of doctors working in those specialties because, as I said, internal medicine is a massive catch-all discipline. It definitely is. I'm so I'm sad to hear this, uh, and I I got some insightful and provocative notes from your father over the years, which I really appreciated and enjoyed. So we'll do this type of follow-up. You know, we're actually looking for uh, some time with the interim dean of the Mon School of Medicine. So I'll add this to the list about just how many people we're seeing enroll in some of these subspecialties or uh, specialties or disciplines, and you know what the quota or quotient would be with a population of in and around 540,000 people. So we'll do the follow-up as best we can. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, Patty. And I, like I said, I just need to be a voice for that, uh, so that this this doesn't continue happening. Understood. And you're a hundred percent right. I appreciate your time this morning, Lisa. Once again, my condolences. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. Oh boy. Yeah. There's big questions there, and I don't know if the status of uh, having. Uh, the Dean of Mon School of Medicine on, but we'll keep trying to do exactly that. Let's go to line number one. Annie, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning to you. We got a beautiful morning here this morning, but uh, the reason for, for my call is there's a bad accident at the top, what we call Western Brook Hill, Red Harbor Hill here uh, this morning. So yeah. anybody that's coming from north of Red Harbor, Roshun, Bay Largent, those areas going into Marystown shopping is not going to get through up there for a while. 
We were told once the accident happened that there was going to be the potential for the highway to be closed or blocked off for maybe five or six hours. And so we're still inside that window. I have a friend sitting in his vehicle on that stretch of highway right now, and there's vehicles backed up as far as the eye can see. Okay, so you're aware of it then? Yep. 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 I was lucky enough that I got to turn around, and like I said, I'm not going to talk in details about nothing. There's, there's the, the accident, there's people there, I mean, that got relatives enough of said. There hasn't been confirmation of the severity of the injuries, uh, so I'm staying away from it until we get confirmation as well because yeah. no sense just spreading rumors around no. unnecessarily so because, you know, we're hearing rumbles of one thing, but rumbles are not good enough for me. I'll wait to hear what the RCMP tell us. Yes, and my reason for my car was like people traveling can basically turn around and go back and not get cut up there into the the lineup, right? I was lucky enough. I went over the hill and uh, I got turned my little car around, so I got out of it, right? But I mean, there's going to be people now. Day is Friday from down over the road here, going up shopping stuff. Might be lucky enough to hear me and turn their car around, and go back home. Yeah, we've had it on the news. I would imagine Brian's been including it in his newscast throughout the morning because it is quite serious. We're told, and we do yeah. know that the highway uh, is blocked up uh, for you know hours on end. So it's helpful advice if you don't have to be in that area today, even if you want to just delay your travel while the traffic uh, eases up or the log jam clears up. It's probably a good idea to do exactly that. Uh, appreciate the time, Annie. Anything else you want to tell us? No, nothing at all, except I'm the best kind. Good to hear your voice. I'm glad to have you on the show. Are you ready for Christmas? Uh, yeah, pretty much. And I don't have a big lot of kerfuffle over it. I'll just enjoy the grandkids. Yeah, like you would. <laughs> How many grandkids do you have again? I can't remember. I got two. One is 14 now, and the other one is 10. Are they close by? Uh, in Large Cove. It's like an hour's run. Okay. But, uh, oh, my God, Patty, sure, there's no words for the grandchildren. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll say it out loud. I hope there's a day when I have grandchildren as well, no doubt about it. Well, you know what? Just I want to add this before we leave. Seeing Christmas is going to be quite a sentimental time for everybody, and COVID, is, I guess, is still around. To mention that briefly, um, and, it, and just a personal note for me. 21 years breast cancer survivor. My grandson was born, and the only thing I wanted was to see him raised, and now he's gone over my height, which is not very much, but he's gone up over my height, so I got a lot to be thankful for, a lot to be grateful for. I'll end by saying everybody be careful on that highway. For sure, Annie. I appreciate the time. Enjoy the grandkids. Yes, thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Take good care. Yeah, bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, um and grown over Annie's height. I'm looking up at my two. They're big Amagons. Okay, yesterday we talked about a couple of issues regarding the type 2 diabetes drug Ozempic. And some 3.5 million uh, prescriptions for that drug were filled in Canadian pharmacies last year. Certainly not all of which were for treating type 2 diabetes. It's proven to be a pretty effective weight loss tool. I think it's called a semi-glutide drug. So Dr. Kathy Balsam, one of our friends from the uh, MTS clinic uh, over at Memorial University School of Pharmacy, will talk about it, how it works, and the whole issue regarding a drug being developed for one cause or reason as a treatment and then being used for others. And some of the warnings with, uh, for instance, a restoring the UK, where someone ordered a, a similar type of drug online from an unregulated body, and it made her quite ill. So we'll try to cover as much ground as we can with Dr. Kathy Balsam right after this. Don't go away. 
nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to Dr. Kathy Balsam from the Medication Therapy Services Clinic at Munn School of Pharmacy on line number three. Good morning, Dr. Balsam. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. And you're also an assistant teaching professor. I should add that. <laughs> That's okay. Okay. So the whole business regarding Ozempic, let's talk about how drugs are approved for one issue or another, and then whether or not it's the ethics of, or I don't even know what the right word is, for people going in to use it as a weight loss drug. How does that work? Yeah, absolutely, Patty. So I guess there's many times that drugs have been studied for one indication, like Ozempic for diabetes, and then they've realized through clinical trials and using it in our population that, you know, there's a side effect that is seen with the drug that can be then used for another indication, much like the weight loss thing that we're seeing with Ozempic. So when it was originally um, studied for diabetes, they did see some significant uh, weight loss. So then the manufacturer said, okay, well, what can we do um, to make some money off of this <laughs> and to also help people uh, manage obesity? So they did the adequate trials using the same drug and showed that it was effective and somewhat safe for folks to be using for weight loss as well. So then they also started a whole new marketing campaign and been using it now for two of the different indications. So how does it work regarding weight loss? So I guess the drug itself, I guess it works the same way for both diabetes and weight loss. So it's a GLP-1 agonist, and we actually have our own GLP-1 within our body. It's a natural hormone. So this, uh, this drug, semaglutide, really closely mimics our own body's GLP-1 hormone, and it's kind of replacing that hormone or, or giving us a boost of that hormone. So that hormone is naturally released by our stomachs after we eat, and it increases insulin secretion, so it makes us really effectively use any glucose that we're taking in in our meal. And it decreases glucagon secretion, which normally tells us um, to make more glucose. So overall, this is how it's decreasing the amount of blood sugar. And of course, decreasing the amount of blood sugar prevents it from being stored and turned into fat, etc. The other thing that it does is this hormone slows down our gastric emptying. So it slows down the process of moving the food along in the, in the stomach. So this is where most people do find that they have a decreased appetite as well as a decreased blood sugar because they're, they feel fuller longer. So it's sort of like a pharmaceutical mimic of like bariatric surgery. Yeah, I guess that's one way of looking at it for sure. You know, you can still eat. However, uh, you do have a decreased appetite oftentimes with this drug. Interesting. So was there an additional approval when people found out that Ozempic worked for weight loss or does it even require that? Yeah, so Health Canada does um, have you know very strict standards on what they approve uh, in terms of medications for each indication. So Health Canada has actually approved Ozempic only for diabetes. There is no Health Canada approval for Ozempic for weight loss. However, they have approved the same drug, semaglutide, under the brand name Wegovi for weight loss. So it's the same drug, um, but it's under a different trade name and a slightly different dosage. However, we haven't been able to get it in Canada because it's become so popular for weight loss, uh, particularly south of the border, that the drug company is just shuttling whatever supply they get to the U.S. 
So we haven't been able to get the one that is Health Canada approved or the version of semaglutide that is Health Canada approved for weight loss in Canada. And that's why people are using the Ozempic. So if it has these, I don't know if the right word is gastro-related issues for weight loss, what are some side effects that people should be considering when we talk about Ozempic? I've heard the commercials. I kind of remember them talking about abdominal pain and or some potential nausea, what have you. What can you tell us? Yeah, I mean, I can certainly talk to the most common ones. There's a bunch of other uh, side effects as well. So certainly worth talking to your community pharmacist or coming on into the MTS clinic if you're concerned. But nausea and vomiting are a big thing, as well as abdominal pain. And and Patty, you can imagine, you know, just as you would feel when you're really, really full and you kind of ate too much, um, that's kind of one of the most common side effects along with that. When there are, you know, such a run on pharmacies and family doctors, what have you, to get a prescription for this, people will turn to some online pharmacies. I read a story coming from the UK the other day. A lady had ordered from an unregulated site for this injectable drug and made her really quite ill. What kind of warning should people be considering when it comes to turning to online because you can't get it through a traditional pharmacy? Yeah, I certainly caution anyone going outside of their typical pharmacy uh, or their licensed pharmacy uh, within Canada or, of course, within Newfoundland. When you're going online, because this is so popular, it's kind of become a target for people making kind of pseudo drug um, that they're kind of making up in their own labs. It's not Health Canada tested. It isn't even really proven to be the same drug. So I certainly uh, caution anyone going outside of the typical pharmacy. And I can see why people are pushed to even consider that right now because you really it's a struggle to find Ozempic in pharmacies in the province right now because there is a national shortage, which was extended. Uh, we thought it might be over uh, in October, but it's actually been extended to March of 2024. So if there's a shortage of the drug, how is that impacting people who are actually using it for its intended purpose to treat type 2 diabetes? Yeah, and I mean, I I definitely feel for people that are using it for both diabetes and for weight loss. Um, and, you know, there are alternatives. Um, if you kind of mentioned to your pharmacist that, you know, you're really worried, you don't want to just kind of go without Ozempic, what can you do? Uh, your community pharmacist can help. We would certainly be um, able to help or, you know, meet with clients here at the MTS clinic to go through their options. There is that um, Ozempic, of course, is an injectable medication. Uh, so you inject it once a week. There There is an oral version of a pill of the same drug that some people could switch over to, and that is available. There are also kind of sister drugs to Ozempic that are are all the GLP-1 agonists as well, Um, pros and cons to each. So certainly worth talking to your community pharmacist about other options to kind of manage your diabetes or even weight loss um, while you're waiting for the Ozempic to come back. I mean, in Hollywood, they're actually calling Ozempic the skinny jab. So, I mean, the trendy issue is really quite odd. So the the other one that you mentioned, is that uh, Wagovi? Uh, yeah, so Wegovi is the same as Ozempic, so that one we can't get, but there are three other GLP-1 agonists that are available as injectables. We've got Munjaro, Trulicity, and Victoza, so all of those can also be used to treat diabetes as well. Let's do our uh, our normal uh, plea for folks out there who are taking a variety of different medications to get them reviewed by their clinical pharmacists like yourself and or go to their own pharmacy just to make sure that they still need the drug and some overlaps that might be of concern, those types of messages that we all, always try to include. Absolutely. So, Patty, our number is 864-2274. And anybody out there that's kind of concerned whether it be about the Ozempic shortage and alternatives or just medication issues in general can certainly call us for a free consultation. How are you enjoying the teaching? I really enjoy it. I love being in the classroom. Uh, Great. Good to have you on the show. Any final message before we say goodbye this morning, Doctor? 
No, just, you know, uh, we're certainly willing to take anybody that's asking about any medication issues or anything. All they have to do is call, and we can do consults in person here in St. John's or over the phone if you live outside the overpass. Always nice to speak with you. Thanks for the time. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Dr. Kathy Balsam at the Medication Therapy Services Clinic at Munn School of Pharmacy. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to our friend from the Wooden Boat Museum. That's Jim Dempsey. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Patty Daly, I'm call, talk, calling you here from the Atlantic Canada Fish and Workboat Show down in Mary, Mary Brown Center. Oh, it's ongoing right now. Yeah, it's, we're in the middle of it here. We got a booth up near the main entrance to the uh, center. Um, I got a 17-foot dory here, and uh, it's attracted a lot of attention. So uh, I thought it'd be a good day to call you. Absolutely. What can you tell us about what else you're seeing down on the floor? Um, well, it's the usual stuff. There's a lot of like, fishing gear, of course, mechanical gear, um, safety equipment, a uh, few boats. Uh, it's, it's always a big deal. We, we try to make it every year, but, uh, of course, the schedule over the past few years has been disrupted, but we're back on track. It must be a nice, nice contrast. You there with your wooden boat, and then you look at some of the more modern types of ships and boats and uh, technology and gear and stuff, so it's a nice little contrast. It really is. I've had, today already I've had a number of crews come by, you know, wearing their, their ship's jackets, and uh, they all look at the boat fondly and remember the good old days, so that's, that's cool. That it is. Well, can you tell us, Bob, what else is going on out at the Wooden Boat Museum? Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, um, I mentioned this at the beginning of the summer, but the boat we're selling here today um, was actually built by a group of women in uh, August. So it was a, a female-only workshop, and they did a great job. And so they're the ones that built the boat that you have on display. Are you, did you say you have it up for sale? It is up for sale, yep. And what does that go for? $5,000. $5,000. Terrific. And, of course, you've got lots of really cool programs out there. The boat in the box that I think you're trying to monetize as a retail product. Then there's week-long sessions, junior builders, which I think is a great one. Then there's a 12-week session uh, available. So for folks who've never been to the Wooden Boat Museum, completely worth your while. And maybe it could be one of those women or men to build one of these boats that you'll see sold at a show like the Fishing Work Boat Show. I'm glad you mentioned the 12-week session. Um, we were uh, really affected by the pandemic with that, and uh, we're back in January 9th at uh, Memorial University. Um, we've got a few registrations. We're looking for more. Uh, go to the website, and uh, we'll sign you up. That's always a satisfying uh, experience. Build yourself a Marcus French Rodney. You got it. Good to have you on, Jim. Okay, Patty, we'll be, we'll be in touch. Good luck with the show. Take care. All right, there we go. The 16-foot, 4-inch uh, Marcus French Rodney. Cool. All right, let's take our final break of the morning and of the week. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number five. Good morning, Sean. You're on the air. Patty, how are you doing, buddy? Doing okay, man. How about you? Well, I can be better. Somebody just uh, stole my truck from my work site about a half an hour ago. Yikes. What kind of truck? Uh, 2011 GMC Sierra, uh, silver in color. Boy, I tell you what, this is the third stolen truck story I've heard this week. Yeah, well, it's, uh, I know somebody else who had their stolen, so, uh, I'm just building a fence in the backyard, and, uh, I thought I heard my truck start, you know, the sound of your own truck. Anyway, I just looked over my shoulder, and between the homes, I seen it going up the road, so... Well, there's some brazen. Anyway, I just figured if somebody saw something, if they wanted to phone the uh, police or whatever and let them know. Okay, what color is it and stuff like that? 
it's a silver color and uh, it had body work done on it so uh around the wheel wells and that it's uh it's a, a darker gray i just primed it i didn't even paint it yet so um it's an older truck but i mean it's it's one of them don't laugh it's paid for so <laughs> it's my work truck yeah so hopefully they're just on a joy ride and they dump it a couple of neighborhoods over and you get it back but that, uh, yeah. it's remarkable how many stolen truck stories i've heard this week yeah it's shocking though i was just talking i had a long talk with the officer and he was just saying like it's gone really foolish it's uh you can't keep nothing out and and I said, what do you think is going to happen with it? He said, well, chances are they'll sell it for drugs. Or Plus, I had all my tools in the back of it, so they're gone too. So it's an expense before Christmas, but I, I got three children. But anyway, and, and I yesterday I ended up getting pneumonia, so that's why I sound kind of horsed up today. There's a couple of places that you can uh, post a picture of your vehicle so that people can keep an eye out for it. You can send us an email. We'll share the picture of it as well. But there's, what's it called? It's on Facebook. It's just, what's it called, Dave? Stolen in Newfoundland or stolen on the Avalon? So, yeah, uh, stolen on the Avalon is what it is. Post a picture of it there too. People keep an eye out. I will. Yeah, the uh, police are up there. They're uh, looking at security cameras. They've been at one host now for a half an hour, so they must be really looking at their security camera. So I'm sure it's just somebody walking up the road and uh, and decided that they wanted to take it. So anyway, yeah, it is the what it is. brazen nuisances. Uh, yeah. So hopefully you get it back, Sean. Right on, Patty. You have a good weekend. You too, buddy. All the best. Take care. All right, bye bye. You know, there was an article out the other day about the most commonly stolen vehicles in the country, and then there's uh, continued warnings, especially come from insurance companies. There's technology out there, like for instance, if you walk into your front door and you just flick your keys in the ball or you hang them on a hook right there on the porch, if the, the if the thieves can get close enough, even to one of those uh, fobs where you don't have to put a key in, you simply press the start button, they can copy your fob through your door so be careful even where you leave your keys in your own home so that was an interesting warning but apparently that is quite common especially in ontario and quebec uh let's go to line number three peter you're on the air good morning patty good morning to you how are you doing very well how about you i'm good i won't take up a lot of your time here i'm just calling concerning the road conditionings uh, Mr. <clears throat> excuse me, Mr. Abbott was on this morning, uh, referring to that accident on the Bjorn Peninsula that they had slippery road conditions. Well, we're in we're in a worse situation here out in St. Brides. Our we got uh, right now we got one operator that our depot opened on the 18th of October. Normally, there are four operators goes in place. And as of the 18th of October, there was no operators to go to work. I've worked with transportation for 34 years, and I retired last February, and the operator that was there got my position. The other three operators right now, as we speak, three of them are off on sick leave. And one one fella won't be back at all. He have disc problems. He he's thirty eight year working driving trucks. So I do I do take a toll on you after a while. But we have absolutely we have one operator here that he's new, never did it before, got very little training and 
for that guy to take a truck and I don't know, I guess you've drove to Cape Shore, mm-hmm. it's not an easy road to drive when there's slippery conditions. But anyway, there's nobody to go on the trucks and they said they applied and they can't get no one. I wrote to Mr. Abbott on several occasions uh, looking for information that that there's no work getting done out here. Our roads are just impassable. Going through the community of St. Brides is unreal. Our depot closes every spring, and the guys here, they go to Whitburn to go to work. So Whitburn is responsible for Whitburn out to Cave Shore to Point Lance Road. Uh, St. Joseph's is responsible for uh, Point Lance Road to St. Joseph's. And I got to say, they do an extremely good job. Not a problem. They're patching. Everything is good. But nothing like that done out here. We got to fight to get a few holes done. And here we are now coming into the winter and the holes are there and it's going to be too late to fill them. I drove through St. Bride's uh, last summer. It was like a minefield. Terrible. It was absolutely terrible. And it's a very tricky stretch of road. Yeah, it is. It is. But, you know, it all comes down to management in the higher-ups. we got a superintendent who's been in the position, I would say, just pretty sure, eight years for sure, who have never, ever been in our depot yet. Superintendents before him, they were in our depot on a weekly or a bi-weekly basis. We got, we got another regional director who lives on the Labrador, so how can he know and how can he control what goes on in, in these areas? Impossible. So anyway, I just said I'd give you a call on that to let you know that we're in, we're in hard shape. If we get a lot of snow, I don't know what we're going to do. Just, people just won't be able to move because it's going to be slippery. We have never, ever had complaints before. Our roads were always well-maintained. We had a, a, a bunch of great guys, very dependable. They were always there on the weekend, whenever. But that's how it come to a standstill. Well, so, even, even one operator, even if you were a seasoned operator, there's only so much work anyone can do in the run of a day. So that is certainly not the uh, staffed up as the minister described. So we'll follow up with these office. Okay, I appreciate it. I appreciate your time, Peter. Good luck. Thank you very much, Patty. Okay. Bye now. All right, bye-bye. And, of course, when we were talking with Annie, I hadn't seen, because I was busy, any confirmation come from the RCMP, but as you've heard, I would imagine Mr. Bador saying the newscast, there are two dead as a result of the accident or collision on the Buren Peninsula Highway this morning between a truck and a transport truck. So, obviously, extremely sad news. And as the minister described, when and if the RCMP, when they conclude their investigation and they associate one of the contributing factors to the road conditions, the slippery uh, nature of the road or what have you, it then becomes a necessary review inside the department. Now, whatever the investigation reveals or whatever review the department does doesn't bring these two poor souls back but we've got to ensure, like when the province w- w- moved away from 24-7 snow clearing and ice management, the questions were obvious. You know, not everybody has the uh, opportunity to travel uh, exactly when the uh, depots are open and the uh, operators are on the road. So even when it comes to things like uh, calling for uh, an emergency plow because you have an emergency and an ambulance has been dispatched, you know, it's fine to say that they will move, put the plows on the road when they get that type of call, but... 
many, many times when you call for an ambulance, you don't have time to wait for the plow to get out in front of you, right? You just don't. So I'm not really sure if that works the way it's intended to. And again, I'm absolutely unsure of any of the details surrounding this collision and two fatalities on the Bureau Peninsula Highway this morning. But once again, if road conditions are part of it, then that's got to be a bigger conversation. All right. And someone told me uh, while I was trying to scrape that name, Facebook group out of my head that was stolen on the Avalon, uh, Chrissy sent along exactly that. So we appreciate that. And if you keep your eyes peeled for Sean's 2011 grayish truck because he's only got the primer on, hasn't even painted it yet. But the stories about the number of stolen vehicles this week is, uh, is uh, uh, outrageous. While I was talking about it, someone sent me an email saying their neighbor had their car stolen two nights ago. So there you go. Anyway, good show today. Big thanks to all hands who, who support the program. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk Monday. Bye-bye.